Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, February 24th. Things got a loud, man. I did that. Sorry. Uh, okay. Okay. Good morning, sir. I, I turned up your... Uh, That's what you get for coming in here complaining about your Gamecock season <laughs> tickets and the Gamecock <laughs> Club membership and then dashing into the uh, adjacent studio at the last moment trying to do your job uh yeah that's true and I mean, I, i've got everything completely and totally aligned here rev but yes. i mean i got here at about five yeah you've been here okay. working you, you stagger did. in yep. you, you reek of alcohol oh, now i stagger well you stagger alcohol. in you reek of alcohol <laughs> uh, you 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 push the door open mm-hmm. i'm diligently preparing for four hours of radio brilliance i interrupted your prep time and you complain and whine about your gamecock club situation yeah in a retrospect bit. the bit. bowl game that's right well, I was so, just filling you in on a conversation well, I had real, yesterday. So, 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 Rev, there's kind of an inside joke we have here mm. with some of our guests. Mm. Um, Rev will take opportunities afforded him to let folks know the situation he's dealing with in regards to their service or their product. <laughs> in other words, there was a rebate check due. <laughs> this this way what are you back. going back? Eight years? Well, I, mean, yeah, well, I mean, you badgered him for like <laughs> six months. Right. So, so we got a particular guest that comes in that Rev had convinced himself was in charge of his rebate check. <laughs> so, so Rev, so every time the guy comes in, um, I mean, I'm waiting. I mean, we, we do our interview with the four of the guy leaves, and we said thank you for coming by. And before he leaves, Rev goes, um, "Hey, got a minute? I'm going. Like, Here he is. Here we go. Here we go. Done any for the guy, for the rebate check." Right. So in similar fashion, Rev walks over this morning. Good morning. How are you? Fine. Hey, let me tell you what happened to me yesterday. I didn't ask you what happened to you yesterday. I'm trying to prepare for four hours of radio. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on this rant about the Gamecock Club. And it's not about there's um, but there's renewal season. IPTA members can relate to this. Mm-hmm. There's the time of the year um, when football's not really on your mind, but you've got to begin paying the um, the dues to allow you to sit in certain places, park in certain places, and there's an abundance of opportunities now. Um, not as many as there would have been had they not upset Tennessee and Clemson. Had they not upset Tennessee and Clemson and the basketball season going the way it's going, which was kind of predicted, and and you had to see that one coming, um, it would have been a – here's what I'll say, Rev. Your opportunities would have been more abundant. Yep, I you, get that. Your abilities to move around in the stadium and the Williams-Brice would have been much more um, appealing. To the um to the fan, but uh, because mm-hmm. they upset Tennessee, because they upset Clemson, there's um there's this optimism that that abounds yeah. in Gamecock Nation <laughs> about how exciting this potential this year optimism could, it is yeah this year could potentially be so um but but Rev's talking to the guy trying to negotiate the best deal he can but he can't help himself he goes hey, let me tell you about the bowl game. <laughs> Let me tell you about me and the Catholic seven rows from the sky. Mm. Am I right? You're absolutely me, right. Me and the green clad leprechaunish Catholics seven rows from we the top row. We're all sitting row. together at the yeah. game. And uh, well, you're closer to God. That's it. Right? I guess. I mean, I don't know that you were practicing Catholicism, but you were closer to God seven rows from uh, that, the That's upper one deck. way to look at it, At the I Gator suppose. Bowl in Jacksonville, right? That's right. Which was in an NFL stadium. It was. It is. And uh, and we had, had a good time, but yeah, to, to fill in the story, because you're just being funny here. And it is because well, did I, I get anything wrong. Well, I, I and I ran in here and turned on your microphone right as we were wrapping up the conversation, and I hit your your slider up too high, and that's why it was too loud in your headphones. Anyway, yeah. So so I just wanted to say, hey, did I do anything wrong? Because I, you know, I, I paid my Gamecock dues. We bought the season tickets, did everything we're supposed to do, and uh, and then did my ticket request when the bowl game was announced. They gave you a deadline to buy and pay for your tickets, which was like I don't know three three weeks or so before the game. And, uh, and then they did the allotment. Now, there was an unprecedented 
you know, amount of requests for the tickets. Because of the Tennessee-Clemson games. Yeah, because that really created the interest. And the Gator Bowl's a big deal. I think he said the previous bowl, the previous year's bowl game was in Charlotte, an hour away from Columbia. And but it I was think, the Mayonnaise Bowl. Right. And I, I think he said, he said 5,000 tickets or something like that was the, the request. And this was more like 20,000 uh, for this game. But, yeah, so I just said, well, what did I do wrong? And he said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. He said, we just had so many requests. We tried to honor as many requests as we could. So they split up the tickets, and they, they said we, we did uh, seven tickets, and there were two in what's called the lower bowl, and then the other five were in the upper bowl. And, yeah, mine just happened to be in the midst of a lot of green Irish and seven rows from the top. Uh, you would agree that I'm a pretty good plunderer. <laughs> But I, 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 I don't always, no, I don't remember the best, but I don't always do things by the book, right? Right, right. I'm going to give you some friendly advice. Okay. You ready? Okay. As, as not just a longtime Gamecock fan, but but a longtime plunderer. Okay. There you go. Um, Don't buy bowl tickets through the university's athletics department. Okay. Don't. All right. Just d- refuse to do that. Um, They have bureaucratic-minded individuals mm-hmm. in charge of out. the process. Yep. And they don't always... They're not going to plunder for you. They're going to do as bureaucrats normally do, take the easy road out. Sure. And you're in some category. You've been a Gamecock club member not very long. That's right. So you're in some category. You, you have an amazing personality. That doesn't get you where, <laughs> anywhere in there. Um, Couldn't talk my way into better tickets, So, apparently. So here's, the, here's my advice to you. Don't ever buy. I mean, you got to buy your season tickets. If you want to be a season ticket holder, you really don't. I mean, if you want to go to a game now and then, don't buy any season tickets. Don't buy any parking. I'm um, going some of the uh, free ticket exchange websites, and I would advise Clemson fans of the same. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be a supply and demand phenomenon. Are they winning or not? I mean, if they're winning, obviously there's going to be more demand sure. for the tickets. That you know increases the price of the supply. But uh, going back to macroeconomics now. But but in in all honesty, when you when you decide to go to a bowl game, just wait, wait and see how it all sorts itself out. You got the the Jacksonville Chamber of Commerce. You've got the season ticket holders for the professional football team. You, you've got uh, I mean, there, there's just a lot of different ways that they allocate and disperse tickets. And I have found over the years, plundering as a Gamecock fan, you're far better off to let that kind of set it, sort itself out, and let the dust settle a bit, and then begin scouring the countryside for the best opportunities. Um, it still comes down to what are you willing to pay sit where especially if it's a high-profile game. And, and, and that was my question to him because d- right before the game, I met some people at the tailgate who had bought a group of tickets that week, I think from Ticketmaster, um, and they were like within 20 rows behind the game. But Gamecock did they bench. say what they paid for they, it? I don't think. Well, I, I mean, you, you know, you can sit anywhere you'd like to sit if you're willing to. Sure. Somebody said, I, I, there's no way I could ever get a ticket to the Super Bowl. No, if you're willing to spend money, there's no way you could never get a ticket sure. to the Super Bowl. Um, some of these... Um, I mean, the Masters, Augusta National. I mean, you can get tickets there. You can get tickets to a Super Bowl, a Game 7 of the World Series. I mean, if you've got um, if you've got your income fixed accordingly, <laughs> you can get a ticket to whatever you choose to get a ticket to if you're willing to pay the price. But dollar cost average and bang for your buck. That's probably a better way to say Bang for your buck. Wait until everything gets settled. And In other words, let the Notre Dame Booster Club do its thing. Let the Gamecock Booster Club do its thing. Um, in Clemson's case, it would have been Clemson and Tennessee. Let those two booster clubs do their things. Um, let the the hosting city and stadium do its thing, and then you'll begin seeing tickets available. And you got to make your mind up: Do I want to sit here for this much or there for that much? 
But I found in my 50 years of attending USC football games, and I've been to probably a dozen bowl games-ish, somewhere thereabout, it's always better to do it that way. And the university makes you um, – I mean, they, they have certain performance. Uh, you know, they have quotas. In other words, the university's athletics department – I mean, Ip Tay and the Gamecock Club are um, scored or critiqued or, or basically you get a job or you don't by how you perform. And if you, you, know, if you convince 20,000 Gamecock fans it's worth going to, you know, to Jacksonville to a bowl game, then you get some brownie points there. Um, if you don't, and we find out that um, – let's say hypothetically – that uh, Clemson sold, I'm using Clemson to be fair here, let's say Clemson's IPTE, um arrangement sold 10,000 of the bowl tickets when they played Tennessee in the Orange Bowl. Was it the Orange Bowl? Uh, I think it, yeah, yeah, I think it was the Orange Bowl. Um, it stands to reason Clemson and Tennessee should play in the Orange Bowl. So um, so let's say IPTE sells 10,000, but there's 40,000 Clemson fans down there. Somebody's calling somebody into the office saying, hey, how did we not sell these 40,000? I mean, we're happy they're there. I mean, Clemson Nation was loud and proud. But but how is it that there were that many Clemson fans and we only sold 10,000? So they're going to aggressively pursue the likely suspects. You just don't get as good an arrangement. That's a better way to say it. You don't get as good an arrangement. Nobody's screwing anybody. Nobody's taking advantage of anybody. Um, I just think you get better tickets. You get more bang for your buck waiting to let all the dust settle, and then saying, hey, uh, to our family, it costs X number of dollars to sit here or X number of dollars to sit there. What do you think we need to do? And the kids will always say, I mean, they're, they're not concerned about the cost because they yeah. know you're paying for it. So they'll always say, I want to sit there. Um, I'll tell a quick story. We're talking about a bowl game. We went to the bowl game. Uh, this would have been Holtz's back-to-back Outback Bowls. My kids were, I think my my – my daughter may have been a baby almost. I'm trying to think of uh, my daughter was born in 03. This would have been an O. Spurrier gets there in. I mean, this would have been about the time. I mean, she would have been a baby. She would have been yeah. an infant at about that time. I don't know when we played those back-to-back Ohio State bowl games. I don't remember. But um, and won both. Won both of those games. But, um, but we went. Uh, my boys are young. They're 17 months apart. They're probably... My kids were born in 90 and 92. My two boys born in 90 and 92. So they're 12, 13, 13, 14, somewhere thereabout. We go to the one of the – I'm not a foodie. I mean, you know that. I mean, I'm not a foodie. I joke around with my buddies, and I'll say, hey, my wife and I found a real nice restaurant when we went to the football game. And my buddies always say, what did you find, a Wild Wing Cafe? <laughs> you know, or a Buffalo Wild Wing? I mean, they give me a hard time because right. I don't have that sophisticated a palate. Um, <laughs> some of my friends will pay – X number of dollars for a bottle of wine and a certain – I mean, you know that. You oh, and I have yeah. talked a lot about it. i got two friends in particular that will tell me, hey, we went to such and such and ate such and such, and we ate such and such, and we ate. I want to set you back. And they'll say, 1600 bucks. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. I mean, there, there's no way. I mean, there's just no con- – I mean, I could eat for six months on $1,600 and be just as happy. So they give me a hard time about my redneck palate is what they refer to it as. Anyway, we go to the bowl game. Uh, we win the bowl game. I'm I'm excited. You know, I'm going to show them I'm I'm the kind of dad that lets it roll when we win. Mm. So um so we walk into this steakhouse that, that one of my foodie friends had recommended. So when I walk in the door, the door's heavier than normal. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Watch out. Somebody's waiting on me with white gloves on. <laughs> 
I automatically know I've made a mistake, but I don't want to embarrass myself in front of my family because my two boys are like, hey, daddy's doing something different. This ain't Buffalo yeah. Wild Wing. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're celebrating. Yeah. This ain't one of the Greek restaurants in town with onion rings. I mean, that's normally his, uh, his you know, when daddy splurges, that's where we end up. Um, when we aren't splurging, we're at the McDonald's, you know, in the drive-thru line. So, uh, so anyway, heavy door, um, somebody's waiting on me and, um, and I already know, oh, well, I've screwed up. I mean, this is going to be bad. So we, we sit down, they seat us. Uh, we don't have any reservations, but for whatever reason, they say, if you give us 20 minutes, we've got a table over here. So, so we go to the table and, um, and we hadn't sat there, but about uh, a couple of minutes and somebody brings us one of these little teeny tiny cups and it's got some kind of, um, uh, pre-meal beverage. It's not alcohol, but it's some sort of, um, it's one of these, um, foreign coffees, I think is what it is, but the cup's about the size of a thimble. Um, I remember having to hold it like, damn, I can't even pick this thing up, man. <laughs> little dainty. So, so I, yeah, very dainty. So I take the, um, I look around to make sure no good old boys are in there. No right. good old boys are in there. Rest assured. Um, so, um, so I'm sitting in there, uh, one boy, one boy, my wife, my daughter, she's real little, so she could care less. I mean, it doesn't matter to her where we are, what we're doing. Um, she's got her Gamecock cheerleader uniform on. So about the time we finished this little um, fancy, schmancy, whatever, pre-meal um, beverage, a gentleman rolls out a cart, and it's full of beef. And he explains this cut of beef, that cut of beef. Well, all the, I mean, I'm panicking. I'm, I'm sweating. My palms are wet. I mean, my, my, my debit card is going like, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> here, here we go. So, um, so he stands there, and he obviously knows precisely what he's talking about. And he tells me about this cut and that cut and another cut. And at the very top, it's almost like a pyramid. And at the very top, there's this, this Wagyu. And it's some sort of select. I mean, it's not just your normal Wagyu. It's some sort of select Wagyu that came from, uh, you know, the caves of Sudan or whatever. And Japan, uh, so. only two cows are born a year that can produce this sort of, um, this sort of beef. So, so, <laughs> I know where um, this is going. So, so everybody, you know, and he says, um, I mean, there are no prices. Of course, there aren't any prices in places like that. Um, how dare you insult them by asking, what, hey, what does that piece cost? You if, know, if you need to ask. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, um, he gets to the end. He takes the, uh, the select Wagyu that only one cow per year can produce that sort of Wagyu. And, um, and, and now we're, we're ready to order. So when, when, when he starts talking about that, my wife looks at me like, uh-huh, big shot. <laughs> Don't you wish we were at Wild Wing now? Um, so... So my, my, I have two boys. They're, they're uniquely different. I got one who's a hippie and one who's not. I mean, I got one who is, um, he wants to make the world a better place and the other wants to make his world a better place. That's kind of the way they're hardwired. So, um, so, so, so my kid, my youngest kid, uh, my youngest son says, um, something to the effect of y'all, y'all ain't got no chicken nuggets. <laughs> you know? I mean, he doesn't verbalize it exactly like that, but it's pretty obvious. He's not as refined as most of the people who frequent those sorts of places. Um, yeah, we do. We, we got a kid's meal. Wow. That surprises me, but they did. Um, and then my other son, now once, once again, my hippie kid wants to make the world a better place. This kid wants to make his world a better place. And he says it exactly like this. I'll have that one on the top. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that coming. (laughs) And my wife looks at me like, uh, the expression on her face was like, you think you are so cool. You think you are dad of the year, goody, goody. We get, and I mean, it, this is no side, no, no baked potato, no, no any of this, no collards, no any side yeah, items or whatever. Those, you know, a, 
an asparagus spare would cost. Oh yeah, I think the steak was a buck forty-eight. Oh, I mean, I remember the steak. Just the steak being a buck forty-eight. Oh wow! But when my son said, and and I'm already thinking about, here's the kid that wants to make his world better. Mm-hmm. Here's the telling moment. He says, "I'll take that one on the top," because <laughs> I'd already told him we won the game, man. Get what you want. Don't you worry about it. Daddy's got it. Don't you dare be concerned uh, what it cost until. The bill came due. And I remember like driving home that night going, my father would come out of the grave and get me <laughs> if he knew that I'd spent that much money at a restaurant. But it was accidentally. Um, it was, it was oh, basically, so yeah. Well, I mean, and now occasionally we'll tell the story. You know, when, when, when my kid, I'll have that one. You know, I'll have that one on the on the top. See, as much as it stung at the moment, you have the story to tell forever. Yeah, so and, that's, and that's, that's kind of fun. 15 years ago, 16 years ago or somewhere. Um, well, I just remember talking about the, the tickets at the uh, at the Gator Bowl and being seven rows from the top, um, my oldest son met us there, and of course I had electronically sent the ticket to him, so you know he didn't really know, and and we were sitting and, and he came hiking. I mean it was a hike. I mean I don't know how many steps because I didn't count it, but once you get that far up to the top, he just starts looking at me and he's giving me that look and shaking his head like, what in the hell? <laughs> Daddy let him down. Yeah, Daddy. So- then he let him down. That's why I just I, that's why I wanted to ask the guy at the ticket office, hey, what did I what did I do wrong here? I got I, I got to make one up to my family is what you're basically arguing. Next yeah. bowl game, ten years from now. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure if I want to make sure that I do right by first by world my problems, yeah, though, you know. No question about it. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in a minute. You know, the one thing I've tried to do recently is spend more and more of my time being productive on the two issues that I call more important than the rest. I do think there's a third issue that is beginning to become as important as energy and debt. I mean, I've talked a lot about energy and debt, some of the macro, and it's in the macro. I mean, it's, you know, obviously how much money we spend on infrastructure, uh, how we regulate rail cars and trains. And I mean, there's a big debate with the National Transportation Safety Board and the braking systems of trains and the temperature of the wheels and rails and whatnot. I mean, there'll be a big investigation. They'll probably blame Trump for some of the, the deregulation. I mean, there, there's always going to be that sort of issue in American politics. And, and I mean, I, I'm not calling it a brush fire because it's a tragedy. It's horrific. It's changed the way a community is able to live their lives. But we ain't fixing all of that. I mean, we're just not. We're going to always have instances, examples, or, or episodes in, in American history that include political misgivings, political mistakes. Um, but when we get to debt and energy, and, and now, and, and I'm ready to say this, Friday morning, I'm ready to say that Ukraine has entered that realm. I'm concerned about what I'm reading and what I'm hearing from some of the neoconservatives some of the, um, I mean, some of the Democrat Party leaders that I never believed in a million years would be this committed to foreign invasion, to foreign intervention, to foreign involvement, and and I read a lot yesterday from from, uh, from some of the uh, military generals, some of the Pentagon spokespersons, and Rev, there's a consensus. I mean, there's an absolute consensus um, by any means necessary, whatever it takes. I mean, I think I read and 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 listened to about eleven. I don't want to say military diplomats. I don't even know if that's what you call those folks, but I mean, they're not in the trenches. They're not in basic training. I would imagine at one point in their life, they were in the trenches. They were in basic training, but they've risen to some exclusivity of, um, of commentary and giving an opinion about what America needs to do in, 
uh, in case uh, you know China invades Taiwan, or in case, and it's it, it it's, it's alarming to me how ready they are to commit whatever it takes, and that's their words, not mine. Um, Fox News, Brett Baer had Jack Keane. I mean, he's a military advisor. I mean, I don't know what board he sits on. I would imagine it's Raytheon or McDonnell Douglas or somebody. But anyway, he's a um, he would be what you and I'd refer to as a military expert on Fox News. I mean, CNN ha- has theirs, CBS News has theirs, the New York Times has theirs. There's kind of a cottage industry. You rise to a high rank in the American military. Um, you, people care what you say. They trust your judgment and opinion, and you begin to um, kind of monetizing, giving that or the giving of that of that opinion. But but I. It's amazing to me how little debate we're having on what our involvement should be. And anybody that has a, a, an opinion contrary to the Jack Kings of the world, um, we're immediately labeled, um, you know, Putin sympathizers or communist in, in hiding. And, and I think that's an absurd reality. So I am ready today to say, for what it's worth, now I'm not a military expert by any stretch of the imagination, but guys, I've read a lot about this, and I've tried to understand, and I don't have a lot of people. I mean, and, and with the COVID vaccine, I had a lot of doctors. When we talk dead, I got a lot of people in the financial world that I can talk to with their concern and alarmed about. In, in energy, I've got people in the private sector that I can reach out to, people in government that I can reach out to. I don't have a long list of sources, so to speak, that I can talk to about foreign policy. Uh, but but I am deeply concerned to the point of being alarmed that it seems the um, – the consensus message is whatever it takes, and that is alarming um, to me. I think there has to be a more serious, a more legitimate debate. I sent you an email last night. I don't know if you got it or not, but I sent you an email at some point last night. Mm-hmm. I want to play it uh, before we get to the 7 o'clock hour. Maybe we'll take a break here in a couple of minutes, but it's what should happen when journalists are doing their job. I mean, this is a – it appears to me, don't have any idea – who this journalist is. I think his name is in the article, but I didn't read the name. But he basically argues, uh, this is fair, he, he, uh, he interrogates John Kirby about some of the decisions the Pentagon's making in regard to reinforcements and what sort of commitments are going to be made um, to Ukraine. Because, guys, I'm telling you, as little as I know about Ukraine, as little as I know about the reformation of Russia, as little as I know about the will of the Russian people, the will of the Ukrainians, what what folks in Donbass speak, what what the um what the what the Ukrainian residents who practice Russian Orthodoxy religion, I don't have any idea what they think. I don't believe the military leaders care what they think. I think this is an opportunity to deplete a rival. And if it's that, my point, Rev, is if it's that, then let's say that's what it is. Let's stop making this about Ukraine. Let's stop making this about, you know, um, the Ukrainian people deserve a right to live free and clear of, um, of Russian influence or Russian invasion. I'm not defending Russia invading a sovereign nation. I would never defend one nation invading another sovereign nation. But I think we've got to, we've got to adjust our, we've got to be more open-minded than we are. And, and last night, the thing that alarmed me, Jack Keane on Brett Bear's show, basically said, Brett Baer said, you know, some of the American public are concerned about the ever-growing financial commitment that Americans have made uh, in the name of liberating um, Ukraine. Now, he should have said in the name of depleting Russia, but he didn't because that's not the narrative. Um, And Jack King basically said, 
The federal budget, $6.2 trillion. This is a rounding error. And when he said that, I mean, it, it alarmed me, it concerned I me. I saw that. I'm in night. the, I'm, I'm, I'm in my little, it's not a study. It's a room I sit in and watch TV and prepare for the radio radio show. Uh, but I wouldn't call it a study. It's too informal to be a study. Uh, ain't no desk in the room. I'll leave it there. So, so when he says that, I look like, wow, it's a rounding error. I mean, the 130-ish billion dollars that we have invested in the name of promoting democracy, in the name of uh, preserving the Western society and culture, he's going to call that a, a rounding error. So, so what he's basically arguing, Rev, is I don't care what Social Security does. I don't care what Medicare does. I mean, this, is, this, is, this needs to be a prior priority and, and our lead objective. And that's bizarre to me that we've had so little debate. And, and anybody that has, it's a little bit like COVID. I mean, it really is. Anybody that had an alternative opinion about COVID was, was kind of an outcast that they were a rabble rouser, that they were conspiracy theorists, they were ill-informed, that they were just, you know, illiterate on the subject that we're talking about here. Well, I mean, as we look back, you know who was probably more right than anybody in the um, the scenarios involving COVID? The anti-vaxxers. Now, maybe they stumble on the truth. I don't know that many anti-vaxxers who refused to be vaccinated because they were concerned about the um about the potential side effects. I don't know if many were scientific in nature, but the majority said, I just don't trust the government. I just don't trust the government to tell me to take an experimental drug um, until they mandate. And when they mandate, your career's at risk, your livelihood's at risk, um, to some degree, your reputation is at risk. And now after the fact, as we do somewhat of a post-mortem, we find out the government misled. Did they intentionally mislead? Uh, was it just, um, you know, ignorance of what they were doing. I don't have any idea. Nobody knows for sure, but we never had a debate. It was almost like the narrative was already cast. There was a predisposition that we were going to follow suit with and, and come hell or high water, we're going to demand people get vaccinated. And now we're looking back going, wow, that was pretty stupid what we did. Why didn't we allow people to say certain things? Well, the people that are questioning our investments in Ukraine are being treated just like the anti-vaxxers. How dare you have that opinion? You're, you're, you're gone from being an anti-vaxxer to a Putin sympathizer because you question the government. You question the narrative. You question this predisposition. Let's have a more serious conversation about Russia, about Ukraine, about our involvement, about NATO creep. Is, is every Russian um, claim baseless? Do the Russian people have any justifiable reason to be alarmed at what NATO was potentially going to do in Ukraine. I mean, that's not allowed to be a part of the debate, just as some of the anti-vax narratives were not allowed to be a part of the debate. And I'm telling you guys, that's how democracy dies. I mean, the Washington Post tries to say, you know, the, 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 the lack of truth is where darkness goes to die. I would argue you'll never get to the truth if you don't have vigorous debate. You got to vet these proposals. You got to try to better understand why it is that we're doing what we're doing. So two or three years ago, the majority of not you, because you would be a little bit unique in that you listen to conservative radio, you're a little bit more skeptical or cynical of government. But the majority of Americans, when the government said, you know, this shot is safe and it's effective, the majority of you said, okay, I'll take the shot. It's safe and it's effective. And somewhere down the road, some of you began saying. I don't know if it's that safe and that effective or not. I mean, we're having the questions. We're, we're having the debate after the fact. So we've already invested nearly $135 billion in Ukraine. There is no accounting. 
I mean, if you ask anybody who's advising us to make these enormous investments and you say, what are we doing with the money? Nobody can say what we're doing with the money. I mean, I've listened to six or eight opine, but they don't give any answers. They don't give any credible um, information about what we're doing or what we're, or what we're not doing. And one of the guys that should know more about it than anybody is John Kirby. And, and anytime Kirby's challenged, he struggles. I mean, he really and truly struggles. So the media will not, I mean, the media's accepted. I mean, and here's what the media's ended up doing. And this is so shallow and disgusting. The media is accepting any narrative that Trump's not, um, in line with. In other words, if Trump says the world, um, I mean, excuse me, the sky's red, then the media says it's blue. If Trump says the sky's, it's, and it's really not just Trump, it's the political movement that, that has kind of empowered itself and has become a legitimate threat to the world order or the national order of how we, how we govern our nation. But, but it's alarming to me. And I've got a story here about vehicles and cars and energy and uh, the electric, uh, I mean, the battery facilities and how much mining will be required. I mean, we talked a little bit in the past couple of weeks about debt. But, but I, I mean, we've got to have a more serious debate on energy. We've got to have a more serious debate on debt. I told Rev yesterday, it seems to me for the first time in a long time that there's some concern about the debt. So I began reading everything I could get my hands on. I'm not talking about political operatives. I'm talking about legitimate sources. I began reading as much as I could about the debt. And there is a new level of concern, and it's because of the interest rates. Now, but the interest rate increase is going to, you know, our, our ability to service our debt is going to, is going to become a lot more complicated and difficult because we're not borrowing money at one half of 1% anymore or three quarters of 1%. Some of the benchmarks are at three and three and a quarter ish. The 10 year treasury was kind of the benchmark for the federal government. It's at about three and a quarter percent. But that's increased the, 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 the price of financing exponentially, enormously. But, but we're having these debates after the fact. Now we know. Nobody listening to my voice can tell me that I'm, I'm not right when I say this. Now, we can argue about, you know, degrees of, um, of being right or wrong. The vaccine was not as effective and durable as you were told it was. That is an absolute 100% pure statement. How less effective, how less durable, that there's a fair debate to be had about that. We cannot get our, we cannot wean in one decade our entire economy from emitting carbon. I mean, there's just no way. It's unfathomable that, that a grown-up would buy into that nonsense. I mean, I know grown-ups that do. I, I don't call them dumb to their face, but they're dumb. They're stupid. They're moronic to believe that we can generate enough power in this economy in 10 years from today to not burn any fossil fuel. The insanity of that statement and, and the moronic belief in that insane statement and now I think we're getting close to that point with Ukraine and the Lindsey Grahams of the world and the Mitt Romneys of the world and the Jack Keens of the world and the John Kirby's of the world just saying nothing to see here by any means necessary, whatever it takes. The Ukrainians will never go lacking for anything the Americans can provide in the name of liberating Ukraine from a totalitarian dictatorship known as the former Soviet Union. That's the storyline they're trying to sell to the American people. And we're not allowed to debate these issues any longer. And when we are, they struggle. So let's do this. Let's take a break. I want to come back on the other side. Here's a member of the Washington Press Corps pressing John Kirby a little bit, not disrespectfully, 
but a little bit on, doesn't Russia kind of have a reason to be concerned? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937. Whatever it takes may be rhetoric. I mean, they may be saying this rhetorically. I don't have any idea, but, but you don't joke around with things like this. I mean, this is not a train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, as important as that is to the folks of Ohio and J.D. Vance and President Trump. I understand the optics of American politics. You know, one party cares more than the other. This is, I mean, this is potentially the Third World War, and I'm convinced of that, and I'm not trying to be sensationalist. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I am convinced that this could potentially be um, a, um, a beginning of a third world war. I'll go back to something that interests me a lot. I went back and dug at some of the things I've read. When Zelensky came to Washington, and Joe Wilson wanted to honor him with um, creating a bust in similar fashion to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, I mean, it stands to reason, right? Of the neocons, of mm. the neocons put certain people on certain pedestals. But, um, but remember CENTCOM chief uh, Mark Milley, and he said in, in a public announcement that the, the, um, the involvement in Ukraine was likely to be, and here's his words, protracted in years, not months. Um, that the conflict is entering its second year is not a big deal. And then, we didn't know this, but Zelensky met with major banks about the refinancing of, of, of some of the issues they're dealing with. Um, Jamie Morgan, excuse me, Jamie Diamond of J.P. Morgan, and I've got a quote here, you ready? Um, in fact, Zelensky signed a memorandum of understanding uh, with America's, I think that's the largest bank in America, uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, and um, and Morgan, excuse me, Diamond announced that we are proud of our longstanding support of Ukraine and committed to doing our part to lift up the country and its people. The full resources of J.P. Morgan Chase are available to Ukraine as it charts its post-conflict path to growth. Follow the money. Jamie Diamond sees an opportunity. There will be nation building that follows sooner than later. What did we say? It's um, it's GDP, GDP is worth about $250, $300 million. The cost to rebuild today is about $1 trillion. Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan want to make sure they get the job of financing whatever America invests in rebuilding um, Ukraine. It's absurd. And maybe, once again, maybe this is rhetoric. Maybe they don't mean whatever it takes, but they're damn sure saying it. And they have a lot more influence than I do. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. What if all of this was a big, giant fake to distract the American public from what's actually going on? I mean, if if you look at the rule of 70s, you know, you can take 2% inflation and every... 70 years or every 10 years say it's it's 10 percent that means whatever you're doing is going to double in seven years so if you're saving and you're getting a 10 percent interest well the same thing happens to the budget and all the spending what did yellen say to china you know you better behave or we're going to cut off all your banking the united states controls all the banking in the world and right now they're trying to go to a a a central central bank digital coin 
Now, that's not to say it's going to be actual coin, but it's going to be X's and O's, and every account will be tied to that, and the government will have control of it. They're not saying a whole lot about it because it was an executive order, but right now you've got 120 institutions participating in this experiment to see if it'll work. So if they don't like your politics, they just, you know, shut your account down, no matter where you have it. So Putin has told the world forever he wants to, to go into Poland and Armenia and, you know, all these different countries of the old Soviet Union. And while he's going into Georgia, he got no pushback. He went into Crimea, he got no pushback. So, you know, he, the only time he gets pushback is when you get a strong leader and as far as strong defense. But but if NATO's well, been well, an anti-Russia organization for 30 or 40 or 50 years and, and NATO begins creeping to Russia's border, wouldn't you expect a leader to push back a little? I mean, wouldn't you expect Putin? I mean, what, what do you think? Putin's just going to let every nation... Uh, at his border be aligned with NATO, which was for 50 years an anti-Russia, you know, global organization. I understand. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I'm not sympathetic to Putin, but I understand his concern about NATO creep. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Let's do this. I think Rev has it teed up, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, here's what journalists are supposed to do. Uh, we got a hard break top of the hour. Can't play it now. But there's about three minutes of a serious reporter, serious journalist, taking Kirby to task making him earn his paycheck. Back in a minute. If you've got a family member with a drinking problem or a drug problem or some other sort of personal issue, is the better family member the family member that does nothing about it or the family member that confronts and criticizes and and confronts the issue? And I think in America very often when it comes to foreign policy, we all think we're the good family member by supporting blindly with absolute blind loyalty, whatever our military experts say, because long, uh, for the most part, we've trusted our military experts. Um, I mean, we know there's declining trust amongst our military experts. There's declining trust amongst academia, journalism, um, life in general. I mean, we, we're, we're a lot more cynical. Um, I mean, I got a buddy of mine who says they keep on, they're going to turn me into you because he knows I'm very contrarian and cynical and a conspiracy theorist. Uh, to some degree, I don't wake up every day desiring to be a conspiracy theorist. I don't wake up every day desiring to be a contrarian. The world has forced me down that road. And when I look at some of the realities and practicalities of our foreign involvement, foreign in, in intervention, um, what we were told on the front end, remember, Rev, in Iraq, I mean, the oil revenue would pay for the war. Yep. I mean, there wouldn't be any debt. It wouldn't be added to the, to the deficits. The, the Middle Easterners would embrace us. Welcome us with open arms. They would welcome us with open arms. Democracy would prevail. And, you know, uh, we've left another imprint on the world around us. And, and when you look at what America's decided to do, remember the data we went over a couple of weeks ago? Um, 469 total interventions in American history, um, 251 since the Cold War. I mean, we intervened in other people's business. Now, I understand that, that America has an interest. I'm not naive to that. I'm not, I'm not blind to that. I accept that we have some degree of responsibility. But, but when you look at the Congressional Research Service and you look at the government institution that measures or compiles the information, we had 218 military interventions between our nation's founding 
and the end of the Cold War. 200 and um, 218. We've got 251 cents. So you would imagine at the end of the Cold War, uh, the world's a safer place. The world's a better place. Why? Democracy won. Uh, America prevailed. Uh, the liberating of humanity to, to a more Western way of life was the, uh, was the resolve. And, and that's just not the truth. America has a propensity to intervene, period. Is it warranted? Is it not warranted? I don't know. But historically, Americans have bought in to the concept or mindset of if we're going, it must be on humanitarian reasons and humans' best interest. And I just don't buy that. And I think that the good family member, the good neighbor, is the family member or neighbor who challenges you on some of these issues that we're dealing with. And if you challenge the American political, uh, the American military industrial complex, I'm using Eisenhower's referral, then you're called a, P- a Putin sympathizer or a, a communist in disguise. And, and the absurdity of that, the insulting nature of that, if I am a Putin sympathizer, am I more dangerous than a neocon who says whatever it takes? I mean, let's say on one extreme, you've got a Putin sympathizer, a communist in disguise. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got someone who says whatever it takes. I mean, that, that extreme of neoconservatism. And that's where some people in the Republican Party are. And that's where some people apparently in the Never Trump Party are. And when forced to explain why they believe it's in America's interest or best interest or the Western world's best interest to confront Russia at this border so we don't have to at another border, John Kirby knows more about that than anybody on the planet. I mean, he's an employee of the Pentagon. He is well-versed in uh, European history and uh, global history. I I want you to hear Kirby. I'm not saying he struggles. And here's what I'm saying about this this interaction. I think Kirby acquits himself well. I think the reporter acquits himself well. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But when you look at what journalism once was and what it could be again, is speaking truth to power. And we don't do that anymore. The liberal media buys into the liberal agenda and off to the races they go. Where here's one member of the media who's not buying into this predisposed narrative and challenges John Kirby as a journalist should. To look at this and say the reason that the Russian army is on NATO, uh, the, the Russian army is at NATO's doorstep is because NATO has expanded rather than the, the Russians expanding. That, in other words, NATO has moved closer to Russia rather than Russia moving closer to NATO. Is that not an accurate way to look at this? I think that's the way President Putin probably looks at it. It's certainly not but the way that we look at it. You don't you don't think that NATO has expanded eastward toward Russia? NATO has expanded, okay. and, and the expansion so the has reason, been a good thing for... So the reason that the Russian army is at NATO's doorstep is not the fault of the Russian army, not the... It's not the Russian army that's done it. It's NATO has moved closer to move east. I'm pretty sure it wasn't NATO who was ordering, you know, upwards of 15 battalion tactical groups to within 10 kilometers of the border with Ukraine. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't NATO who put little green men inside Ukraine to destabilize eastern states. I'm pretty sure that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So unless that's changed. It's not not changed. But I'm pretty sure the movement by Russia is Russia's If NATO has moved east... The reason that the Russian army is closer or on NATO's doorstep is because NATO moved. Not NATO is not an, an anti-Russia alliance. NATO is a security alliance. For 50 years, it was an anti-Soviet alliance. So Where's do you not Soviet understand it? Now? Do you not understand how, or can you not even see how the Russians would perceive it as a, as a threat? And the fact that it keeps getting closer to their border 
while their troops, I mean, the, the places where their troops are, you say their troops are, and may, may have been in Ukraine and Georgia, are not NATO members. I don't have, I'm not going to pretend to know what goes in President Putin's mind or Russian military commanders. I mean, okay. I barely got a history degree at the University of South Florida. Right. What I can tell you, <laughs> what I can tell you is that, is that uh, NATO is a defensive alliance. It remains a defensive alliance. Fair enough, but it has moved east. Correct? I mean, that's just a it fact. It has expanded, absolutely. Right, exactly. But it's there's no the reason for anybody to think the expansion is a hostile or threatening move. Look and up. we've been saying that throughout the last 15 years, Matt. Like you're, you're moving closer to Russia. You're blaming the Russians for being close to NATO. No, no, no. no. That's, that's exactly what Hegel said. We're blaming the Russians for violating the territorial integrity of Ukraine and destabilizing okay. the security which situation. Which is not a NATO Europe. member. Which is not a NATO member. I, I, I see Other to you countries feel threatened. Yeah. When you hear someone joke in the middle of a serious conversation, I barely got a history degree from the University of South Florida, that's a guy that's not accustomed to being challenged. And when challenged, he struggles. The reporter did not misstate a single fact. For 30 years, really for 50 years, NATO was an anti-Soviet um, Western marching organization. I believe in the Western way of life. I think the more that the world buys into the Western way of life, the, the, the better humanity does. But I don't get to call every shot in every nation, nor does the American president, nor does John Kirby. And Kirby struggled when confronted with facts from an informed reporter. And if we had more of that, you know what we'd have less of? Governmental mistakes and governmental overreach. If the media sincerely did its job and spoke truth to power, and challenge people like John Kirby when they say reckless and careless things like whatever it takes. John Kirby struggled with, with that reporter because that reporter had his facts together, and he challenged Kirby. And, and, and any time you hear a political person, and Kirby's not a, a politician per se, but he's a political appointee, any time you hear that guy refer to kind of a, a self-deprecating joke, that means uh, I'm struggling. I mean, I, I've done it. I mean, you get yourself in somewhat of a bind, and you, you always find uh, a way to ease the tension. NATO marched to Russia's front doorstep. I'm not defending what Russia did in Ukraine, but every Russian claim is not baseless. Every Chinese claim is not baseless. And the good neighbor, the good family member, challenges not the exterior, but the interior. It's not the drug manufacturer's fault that my brother's on drugs. It's his fault. How can I help him? We'll get to the drug manufacturer at some point in time, but I've got a, I've got a brother. I've got a family member that's in a bind. Do, do, I, do I just keep sweeping under the rug or do I confront it? That's, that's the point I think um, Kirby had an issue with. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Kids, we probably, I don't know, we're too young or aren't bored yet, but how did we respond when um, Russia uh, moved stuff into Cuba? Oh, it was as close as we've come to a a nuclear. Well, I mean, most people, experts, historians agree. It is as close we've come to a nuclear confrontation in human history. Right. Okay. And again, how would we respond if they, if they are China? Well, we probably welcome China. But if they did, if Russia was, you know, for the deep alliance with Mexico or Canada, same thing. That being said, you know, the bottom, bottom line is Russia knows we aren't the good guys, and we know they aren't the good guys. So that's why, that's, you know, it's like mafia nods. They don't, we, we, we the mafia nod, one mafia nod doesn't trust another mafia nod 
it's you know, any more than the, you know what I'm saying? So Russia doesn't trust our government, and they shouldn't. We don't trust the Russian government, and we shouldn't. We don't, and, and it goes all the way around the world. So you know, governments, by the very nature, are, are corrupt and godless. Now, uh, you know, you're talking about the Democrats. Back when Democrats were actually liberals before they became fascists, they didn't trust the government. They didn't. They wouldn't have believed the word of any of this stuff. A bunch of those Woodstock guys, not a damn one of them would have taken um, the vaccine. Not one of them. They wouldn't have fallen apart. They wouldn't have trusted the government. But, you know, when you get back to a serious debate, there's no way to have a debate that's serious, kid. Would you debate, would you want to be debate me on a subject that you had to dag on to defend the total lie that you know that you couldn't win and that stood up under the scrutiny of facts? But if you had enough power to tell me to shut up, shut up or I'm going to throw you in jail, shut up or you're going to lose your job, shut up or we're going to take all your money out of your bank account, that's the only debate they can have. They they are not going to have a serious debate. That's why they wouldn't let any of those people speak out about COVID, because they knew it was a lie. That's why they won't let anybody debate, debate Ukraine, because they know it's also a lie. Never, ever, ever think that a government is doing something on the moral high ground and doing something for humanity to save people's lives. If they wanted to save people's lives, if the Ukraine and the Europeans and the Russians really wanted to save people's lives, they never would have gone to war in the first place. They'd have worked it out. But they but they but we wouldn't even nobody would even talk about peace. So you know, so what ends up happening? Putin's not dead, Linsky's not dead, both of them are richer. All of the, everybody, everybody's richer except for the poor poor spunks that live in these countries that are getting killed and murdered every day for a bunch of daggone powerful politicians that go even more powerful. You know, I mean, I mean, it's always, and who's getting screwed over here in America? We are. Our government has killed us during COVID. Our government daggone is killing us every way they can kill us. And that used to be what the hippies were saying in the 60s, that you can't trust your government, your government will actually murder you. And they will. And you can't trust the FBI. You remember everybody used to say how corrupt the FBI was when we were kids? You'd hear people talking about that. You know, your radical, what we used to call the radical liberal hippies. Man, you can't trust the feds. We said, shut up, you dumb hippie. The FBI is the good guys. Well, guess what? They probably never have been. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. What you've got to understand, guys, there is no, I mean, there is relative good and bad. I mean, there's no doubt about it. In every issue and every debate, every disagreement, I mean, there's a relative good and a relative bad. But what, what some of the neoconservatives in America are trying to convince you of is, is this is not about relative good, relative bad, but rather there are angels in, in pursuit of the genuine interest of humanity. And I don't buy that. I'm sorry. I am as patriotic as there is in this world. I love this country with every fiber of my being. I grew up in a town with no stoplight. My dad worked his ass off, made a go of it at business. I have had an up row or a front row, up close personal view of the American dream. I am benefiting more than you ever imagine from living in a capitalist society that allows personal freedoms and the pursuit of your dreams. I don't take that for granted. I love the opportunities this country has provided for me and my family. There's no way my dad could have done what he did in any other nation on this planet. 
But our government is not angelic. Our government is corrupt. To what degree? I'll let you decide. But there is always relative good. There is always relative bad. And when Mitt Romney opens his mouth and says whatever it takes, it's as if he's speaking for God in some sort of angelic way that we're in pursuit of a better world. No, you're in pursuit of money and power. That's how you got where you are. You have a, a, a more driven ambition to be prosperous monetarily and have power at your avail. That's the bent gene of most politicians, not just in America, but, but around the world. So let's, let, let's frame every debate that there is relative good and relative bad. And if you want to score it, Reb, there is more relative good in America than there is the former Soviet Union or current Russia. I believe that with every fiber of my being. But we're being told that every claim Russia has is baseless. That there's an angel and a devil in this, in this disagreement. And America and Ukraine are the angels. Do you really believe that? I mean, as an American citizen, as an American taxpayer, as someone who is entrusted with the responsibility of holding your government accountable, do you really believe the neoconservatives are in pursuit of a better world or more power? 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I think you kind of hit on a, a couple of great uh, points there. You know, when the Democrats and the liberals were the minority during the 60s and 70s and 80s and they were building a base, they told us that we had to question authority, that we couldn't just take everything for granted and we had to tear down these institutions. It was a black and white issue. Then they got in power. And then it became a little grayer, like, well, believe what we say. Uh, you can trust what we say. Because remember, we were the good guys. And the old song is, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? But they say, no, 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 we're different. And the tactic that has worked so well in America is that if you can create a demon, a boogeyman, someone that we can all get, you know, when we turn the lights off at night, we say, Lord, save me from that whoever. Well, they've just made Putin the boogeyman, right? So now he is a, a maniacal dictator. So anything that you say that, that sounds, you know, sympathetic to him, you are aligning yourself with a maniacal dictator. That's black and white, right? But as you said, you know, there's a little good in every bad and there's a little bad in every good. It's just how much and to what extent. Well, now that they're telling us, well, don't question the authorities anymore because they like the authorities now. They, you know, they got the power they wanted. Now we're not allowed to question everything. So what's funny is a group where everything used to be gray has now moved to it's black and white. And the group of people who used to think everything is black and white have moved to the side that says, I don't know, I think it's kind of gray. It's just interesting how that dynamic has switched uh, over the period of the last 50 years. Um, you know, I would have said, you know, in 1985, if you'd have taken a survey and said, does the government do the most good for the most people most of the time, Republicans, by and large, would have said, yes, I believe that. Democrats, by and large, would have said, no. I think that has switched. And it's all based on his power. No question about it. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937. That's kind of a weird way to say it, but I think in every dispute, between people seeking more and more power, I mean, there's relative good and relative bad, but there ain't no angels. I'll assure you of that.
843-661-0937. Back in a few. I think Larry and Breeze did a great job of explaining some of the realities, some of the um, some of the situations we find ourselves in. In other words, the Republicans historically have been conservative. Conservatives have historically trusted you know, the government. In other words, the military will, I mean, we're not sending men and women to places in, in search of power and money. I mean, they're doing it altruistically. It's to make the world a better place. It's to promote, you know, the interests we stand for, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. This is one ingredient that we can't understate that is kind of a newfound phenomenon. And it's not brand new, but historically it's not been as big a deal. During the Cold War, we didn't have as many, um, interconnections with the world around us. I mean, we weren't isolated by any stretch of the imagination, but China gets legitimized by being a member of the World Trade Organization in 2001, I think. I mean, it was about the same time 9-11. Imagine that. Um, I mean, 9-11 was a big deal in America's existence, but we are all well aware 9-11. I mean, that's all we got to say, 9-11. You know exactly what I, what I mean. Sometime around then, China got legitimized by becoming a preferred nation or gaining preferred nation status in the World Trade Organization. And I could easily argue, I mean, the loss of human life is one thing. Taking your shoes off at the airport is one thing. But but that really affected their impact of the world around us by basically giving them preferred um, nation status. But here's the one thing that I think we've got. I mean, this changes the calculus as far as I'm concerned. The amount of foreign money that makes its way into America and who makes, who skims off of those relationships. I mean, we've got a Hunter Biden. Um, I mean, we've got the son of the former president, excuse me, the son of the current president who we know was paid by a Chinese company and a Ukrainian company. So, so when we say, why is Biden doing this with China? Why is Biden not doing this with Ukraine? Historically, we didn't have to wonder what Ronald Reagan's kid was doing in relation to some foreign adversary or or ally. Now we do. Now with the back of your mind, which probably needs to be the front of your mind, you, you got it when when you when you gauge policy, in other words, when the White House decides to do X in relation to Ukraine and you scratch your head and say, I don't understand that. Was that decision in any way, shape, or form shaped by the current president's son's involvement in lobbying, consulting, whatever it is he's doing, peddling influence. I mean, whatever he's doing, that's not a newfound phenomenon, but it didn't exist in the Cold War Cold War era to the degree it does now. This global economy has allowed for strange bedfellows. Some of the strange bedfellows make enormous amounts of money doing what? Being really good at their job or being very politically connected? being very politically connected. You know the answer Well, I that. mean, who owns the government? I mean, if you, if you decide to, do, to run your for-profit business the way you see fit, and I don't agree with it, none of my business. I've often said, you know, I had a buddy of mine say, such and such bought a Hummer. That's stupid. You know what I asked him? I said, you making any payments? No. Well, it's his business. I mean, I think it's dumb too, but that's his business. That's his money. That's his prerogative. That's his desire. That's what he wants to do. Have at it. But, but the American taxpayer owns the American government. So when our government makes decisions geopolitically, are they making them in the best interest of the American taxpayer? Or are they making them skewed or manipulated in some way, shape, or form by you know surrogates of the government? Um, people working inside the government who have relationships. Um, Mitch McConnell's wife is very involved in foreign trade and 
you know, um, the, the interactions government one with government two. I, I, that, that's kind of a, I mean, that's got to be seriously considered. And I mean, how do you prove that Biden did X with Ukraine because his son had some sort of arrangement? I mean, that's real hard to prove, but you got to consider it. Let's go to the phone. Hall in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning, y'all. Um, I kind of want to pick back up on the Ukraine thing. I saw something on on Twitter the other day where some Chinese diplomat was giving the U.S. a hard time, saying the U.S. has been at uh, hasn't been a war in like 14 or 16 years of like the odds in 250 years of existence. So basically, just saying you know the U.S. is a war mongering country. And so put that into perspective, you know, I think that since 1970-ish, you know, when NATO was kind of founded, I can't say, I mean, I love America. I mean, I'm born here. I'm very patriotic, but I'm very realistic. And, you know, when NATO was founded kind of, I don't know, in the 60s or 70s, I can't say that NATO has crept and pushed and pushed diplomacy and Western ideology closer and closer to Russia. So if I'm Russia, I'm feeling infringed upon. So with with that being said, um, I think the fight that the U.S. is pushing in Ukraine is to save freedom or freedoms on the line. I have no idea that those people in Ukraine were actually free beforehand. <laughs> so are we, what are we really saving over there? Because I don't I think half the information that comes out of there, I have no idea what to believe. And we keep sending money over there. And it's baffling. I've never seen in my life um, us sending a country, uh, sending money to a country and playing a proxy war game on, be- on behalf of what? I mean, do I really care what happens in Ukraine to Ukrainian people? Yes, as a human, it's terrible. But in regards to what we're doing as a country, I really don't care. So that's my point. That's my take on it. I can't say Russia shouldn't feel infringed upon by NATO because the U.S. does push a lot of stuff. Um, but that's my take on it. I just had to vent a little bit. Appreciate well, it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you calling in. 843-661-0937 is our number. So, so I mean, the question, what is American interest in Ukraine? And when Jack came in, that's not a concern to me, guys. I think there's a legitimate debate to be had about American interest in Ukraine. I mean, we can talk about, I mean, Paul made a very valid point. Are the people in Russia pleading with America to help them live a, a Western-cultured society? I mean, do we know that to be true or not? I mean, it, it, are, are the people of Russia, I mean, I, I don't know that anybody wants to live in a communist nation, but I mean, 58% of Democrat primary voters say they'd like to live in a communist nation. So, so in essence, the party of, you know, promoting government advancement today, and this is all about Trump. I mean, this, this is, guys, forget it. I mean, this is all about Donald Trump and the effect and impact. Anything Trump's for, the, 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 the organized political body has to be against. I mean, that's just the nature of the way they roll. They saw Trump as a disruptive political figure who wanted to change the way things were done. So anything Trump is for, they're against. Anything Trump is against, they're for. I mean, there's not a lot of thought put into this. But, but all of a sudden, we find ourselves over $100 billion deep in, 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 you know, in a conflict in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And, and, and I'm asking a question. I don't know. Maybe I missed this. Did, was there a press conference of thousands of Russians who said, I want to live like the Americans do. I don't want to live like Russians do. I want to live like the Americans do. From what I've read, there are thousands of people in Ukraine who practice Russian Orthodoxy religion. They speak fluent. I mean, they, they kind of they, they feel like they're Russians living in, in Ukraine. Um, 
I'm going to go back and read about the American organized coup in 2014. Might have been 12. I think it's 14. That put Zelensky in power. I mean, it was part of the deal. I mean, I've read this. It was part of the deal promising Zelensky that if you abide, if you obey, if you do what you're told, not only will you get uh, a, a lot of foreign aid, you'll also get an opportunity to say yay or nay to NATO. I mean, I don't know that to be true. But, but all of a sudden, Rev, if I start asking questions about those realities, I'm a communist in disguise. I'm a, uh, a Putin sympathizer. You know how those MAGA guys are. You know how those MAGA ladies are. I mean, they profess to be patriotic, but they're so naive and oblivious to the world around them. Well, ask yourself, neocons, how many times have you been told the truth by neoconservatism, Inc.? I mean, let, let's establish that as a prerequisite. How many times? Have the neoconservatives you trusted led you into some foreign intervention that played out like they told you it was going to play out? Let's go back. I mean, in my lifetime, it starts with Vietnam. I mean, it was a lie. It was an absolute, abject lie. And it cost nearly, well, what, 60,000 Americans their lives? And then you fast forward. I'm not talking about the, the day-long Bosnia or Grenada. I'm not talking about those sorts of things. I'm talking about elongated um, military missions that have uh, a, a pre-described or prescribed um, mission. It, it never works out like we're told. So we're, I mean, are we supposed to continue to just b- b- blindly and loyally follow the neocons into the, um, into the intervention abyss? Not me. But yes, you are expected to. Sure you are. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really, it speak, it reeks of arrogance. Did you see the montage? I guess maybe it was Tucker played last night. Might have been Jesse, but it was the what every administrative person and Republicans saying whatever it takes, whatever it well, takes, I mean, whatever it, it, it takes. And I, and I think I put this on Twitter yesterday. If we had our feces consolidated, if our if our budget was balanced, if our border was secure, if our country was in good standing. And, and we believed, genuinely believed, that it's in our nation's best interest to involve ourselves in Ukraine to the tune of $130 billion. We can debate that. That's a, that's a very warranted and legitimate conversation for some of the foreign policy experts, some of the American poli- uh, political diplomats, uh, some of the public to have. But we don't have anything like that. Let me ask you a question. As a parent of a 20-year-old, are you more concerned that your kid dies today or tomorrow from a fentanyl overdose, or the, um, the the march of communism. And, and, and what I say about whatever it takes, Rev, whatever it takes to me is trying to be a geopolitical badass. And anytime you try to be a geopolitical badass and the country you're dealing with has nuclear weapons, it's a different animal, man. And it's got to be respected in a very unique and different way. And it seems to me that the neocons are desperate. They see the public support waning, that they've tried to convince the American public this is in our best interest, and the American public ain't buying it right now. And so, so they're, they're, you know, whatever it takes. There, there's a certain degree of arrogance that I think goes along, as my mom famously said, how do you fix your mouth to say that? Let's go to the phone. John in Florence, good morning. Hey, Ken, uh, just wanted to add to the conversation. So I'm I'm in agreement with what you're saying, and and I'm definitely an American firster, um, but I heard on a on Bill Riley's show yesterday he made an interesting argument about how, you know, and this is well before my time, but 
the staying, you know, just staying in America's lane and, and staying back, that kind of led Hitler to genocide and growing. And he made the argument that as America being the number one, the, the superpower, we do have a responsibility to stop that to, to, because, you know, Vladimir Putin is, is an evil man, you know, and then you got, you got China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. These are the axes of evil, so to speak. But we, we do, he, I mean, it was a really good argument. We do have a responsibility as America to, to stop that before it happens, because prior to World War II, America did hold back, and, and that led Hitler, you know, to push on. So, you know, I, I understand that point that he was trying to make, and I don't know what the fine balance is. I mean, well, I mean, the, the, I, I mean I, I, here's where I agree. I, I agree with what O'Reilly says. America has a role. I mean, America can't stay exclusively in its lane, but, but America can't be the only – America can't carry all the freight. And historically, remember when Trump gets elected, what he demands of, of Italy and France and Germany, some of these NATO nations that were paying less than 1% of their GDP – and some of the um, documentation required them to pay two, two and a half, three percent of their GDP toward NATO. And what is NATO? It's a Western reinforcement alliance. It's to stop a Hitler from ever happening again. But, but in all honesty, my complaint is not what O'Reilly's arguing. It is America carrying all the freight. We're spending. You know, how many, I'll ask you this. I don't have a tally. We spent. A, we're in it for about 135 billion right now. How much is Poland spent? How much is Italy spent? How much is Germany spent? How much is France spent? I mean, they share a continent, right? I mean, they, they're they're a nearby neighbor. I mean, they're they're more legitimately threatened by uh, a a Putin turning into a Hitler than America is. But yet, we're still funding about 80, 85, 90 percent uh, of the resistance, and and that's got to change. America does not need to stay exclusively in its lane, but America can't single handedly direct the paths of of every nation. Uh, whether it borders or not. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. O'Reilly articulates that in a very reasonable fashion. Um, I mean, he, he would argue against America first extremism. In other words, you can't be Rand Paul. You can't say, screw what happens around the world. Let them say grace over their problems. We'll say grace over ours. To which much is blessed, much is expected. We have been unbelievably blessed. I think the world expects us to have a, a primary role. But let's run a tally sheet right now. As to what America's contributions have been uh, in, in helping or aiding or assisting Ukraine and what some of the other nations who are far more at risk than we are. And I'm talking about as a percentage of GDP. Remember when Trump gets elected, he said, we're getting out of NATO unless these countries pony up, unless they do what they're, you know. So, so all these countries say, I mean, they're diplomats, they're leaders, they're prime ministers, they're presidents. You know what they all say, Rev? We can't allow this to happen because it could be the next Hitler. Okay. Put your money where your mouth is. How much are you spending, Poland, to make sure we don't have another Hitler? Italy? France? Ireland? Scotland? Some of the Scandinavian nations? I mean, what are you putting in the kitty? No, they're waiting on America to foot the bill. And that's what America firsters are tired of. I'm, I'm Not only am I tired of policing the world, I'm tired of paying the freight for everybody else. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. So it's in the Western world's best interest to make sure we don't ever have another Holocaust. 
We don't ever have another ethnic cleansing. don't ever have another horrific episode in human history like Adolf Hitler. I mean, that's the argument a lot of the world makes, neocons in, in particular. Bill O'Reilly articulates that in a very reasonable way. He's not an extremist by any stretch of the imagination. And O'Reilly says that some of the America Firsters have to be real careful about America staying in its own lane. I accept that. I mean, I am very pragmatic at accepting that America has an ultimate responsibility to the world around it. I do. I genuinely believe and accept that. Sometimes I do it reluctantly, but but I do it um, needless. I mean, I do it nonetheless. So let's go during the break. I mean, I asked a question. Um, if everybody's so concerned about Putin becoming, um, you know, um, starting a nuclear war or becoming another Adolf Hitler, then why is America... I mean, we're separated by two oceans, Atlantic Pacific. I'm the Atlantic, I guess, from, from Europe. But why are we in it for $130 billion and the U.K. is the second highest spender in defending Ukraine at about $7.6 billion? You got Germany at $5.4 billion. So if Germany and Ukraine, excuse me, if Germany and, and the U.K. are so damn worried about, you know, the, the onslaught of, you know, ethnic cleansing or another Adolf Hitler— then why are we in it for $130 billion and they're in it for um, $5.4 billion and $7.6 billion, respectfully? I can tell you why. They don't have a military-industrial complex that consumes about 3 or 4 or 5% of our budget. I, I'll defend defense spending. I'll, I'll believe that, you know, I mean, I, once again, I think we spend too much on defense. I don't think there's any reason for America to spend $900 billion annually on providing a national defense. I am dovish when it comes to defense spending because I think I understand how much waste, fraud, and abuse is integrated in that military-industrial uh, complex. Eisenhower warned about it way back when. But, but once again, if O'Reilly is right and the world has to be so gravely concerned about another Hitler and the world you know, allowed Hitler to do what he did by not believing that, that someone could rise to that sort of power and abuse power in that sort of way why is the uk not that worried why is germany not that worried why is italy not that worried? if they were worried they would have financial commitments similar in percentage of gdp as america america's in it for about 3.6 i mean america funds nato with about 3.7 percent of its gdp despite trump's encouragement i think germany may be north of two now every other nation is around one and a half percent and it is a military alliance. That's exactly what NATO is. Let's go to the phone. we got a couple of minutes here. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. Um, until we get serious about voting these individuals out that are making these decisions, um, there was 57 U.S. House of Representatives that voted against the latest Ukraine uh package two of them's from south carolina i believe it's jeff duncan and then ralph norman then on the flip side we have joe wilson voted for not only voted for it but voted for a bust of Zelensky in the capitol you got lindsey graham walking around saying that 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 this is the most important thing everybody in south carolina is worried about it until we as a country and as a state get serious about Taking the Joe Wilsons out, taking the Lindsey Grahams out, uh, 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 and paying attention to their votes, we're doomed. 
and I'll take it up there. Thank you, Ashley. You appreciate that. I mean, ultimately, those guys don't steal the jobs, right? I mean, they win elections. Uh, we may get frustrated and wonder how how did Lindsey win again, but he did. I mean, he did. The people decide. I think the nation struggles with the relationship one of the most conservative states in America has, and one of the most America first states America has. And and I and I want to say this. I mean, I'm not a congressman. I'm not a senator. I'm a political has been. You're not a Putin sympathizer or a communist in in disguise if you question the amount of money we spend on defending our nation. And and the, the, the efficiency we spend the money, that's probably a better way to articulate. Is is our national defense budget better spent securing our southern border, saving kids' lives from fentanyl, or involving itself in, you know, who needs to speak Russian and who doesn't around the Ukrainian border? Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. We don't have a call, do we? I thought we did. Somebody hung up? Yep. Okay. They know the delegation's in the studio. See, we turn the bright lights and television cameras on when our delegation, only for esteemed guests do we do all this, right, Rev? Yeah, that's I true. Mean, I'm normally over here in the dark, Fox News or MSNBC on the tube. Every now and then we'll turn MSNBC and Rev say, why don't you watch MSNBC? I say, because I know they're struggling this morning. <laughs> you know, the, the morning after Trump wins, the morning after the Republicans do something. I want to see what the um what the other side. We like to watch um, them struggle. Thanks. Two of our three um, delegation or members are with us. Representative Jay Jordan, Representative Philip Lowe are both with us. Um, I, I'll, I'll begin, uh, Philip, with letting you start on something we didn't have time to get to last week, and that is constitutional carry. The House has now officially passed constitutional carry. The House has. Uh, it was on Thursday we finished the bill up and had a vigorous debate, uh, and it passed, I don't know, about 90 to 30 or something. I mean, it, it was overwhelming, which is a movement that, that has been coming on for a long time, and we've got more and more steam behind it. And basically, I think every Republican that voted, I think, voted for it. So we're we're proud to send it over to the Senate. Give me the thumbnail on it. I mean, is it just uh, refer to the Constitution and the Second Amendment? It's permitless carry. You don't have to ask the government for a permit to carry a weapon concealed or, or open at this point. So it, uh, it, it certainly doesn't allow you to go into the courtrooms, into school buildings, and the places that were already prohibited. But any place that you can legally, you could legally carry with a permit, with government's permission, you can now carry without. Jay, your opinion? I think it's a good thing. You know, this is something the House has passed previously. Uh, the Senate um, has, has not acted on. I hope they will act on it this time. Um, the, the longer I've been around, the more I have been convinced uh, of the old adage of the, the best defense against a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And also, we make laws uh, against uh, dealing with, with firearms. Bad guys don't listen to the laws anyway. So why are we going to put restrictions on good law-abiding people? Let's give them the opportunity to have the most uh, freedom as possible. A couple of things I have heard that I think need to be addressed. Uh, number one, I don't think this will get rid of um, the, 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 you know, the old, we, we had CWP forever. And then we of course had added the open carry to it. Um, I think you'll still see people that'll go get that because of number one training training is a good thing. Uh, and I'd encourage anyone who, you know, doesn't have experience with firearms to go, go take those classes and get that training. It's a good thing. And then secondly, a lot of people like to travel and a lot of States have different rules and regulations and laws associated with firearms. So this will help you stay with that the, the reciprocity process. So if you, uh, I think that's that another reason why the the, the the classes won't go away. But it's got to pass the Senate, correct? Well, uh, we, we've argued 
on this show that the Senate's a more conservative body. Liberal is, is, is this, well, I mean, it's, liberal. More, it's more liberal than you are, <laughs> but it's more conservative than it normally right. has been. Is there a chance this bill passes as written the Senate? Last time it, it lost by three votes and, and Mike Rickenball uh, will replace Leatherman and Leatherman did not vote for it. And Mike has said on this show that he will be. Um, and the fact that we now law enforcement is no longer against this bill. So I think that opens the door to pick up those next two votes that are needed or three or four votes that are needed. Interesting. Jay. I'd add to that too. I agree with that. I'd also say when you look back over sort of the progress of, of gun rights, you know, the house passed and, um, open carry and the Senate passed that there was a lot of consternation in, within the, the, the walls of the state house about what we were, we were doing there. And you, you don't see a lot of people, uh, you don't hear a lot of horror stories about, uh, bad things happening since we passed open carry back, what, a couple years ago. So I think all those are, those things have happened and allowed for some progress to happen and people to see this isn't a scary thing. This is a good thing. So I think it, I think it will get through this. Time. Okay. I want to go, you're talking about the state and, and some different areas of the state have different political proclivities. Um, I'm not asking if you're going to vote for it or, or what do you, but, but I do want to know what you think of this, that there's a, there's an idea being bandied about at the state house and you and I've had the three of us, the four of us with Mike here have had a lot of conversations about the growth in the state. During the week, I read several articles. I'm looking at Social Security and some of the pro formas and, and, and you know, spending curves that look down the road 10 or 15 or 20 years. It's kind of interesting. In America today, someone is born every nine seconds. Someone dies every 10 seconds. That's kind of a weird, weird kind of a, a state of neutrality when it comes to the birth rate and the death rate. In South Carolina, uh, I, I looked at Horry County stats. There are more people dying in Horry County than being born, but it's, it's enjoying unbelievable growth. I'm talking about 12, 13% year over year growth, um, birth and death rate are about like in America. I mean, it's about the, it's kind of an equilibrium there. Um, someone proposed, I want to be careful here, a Yankee tax. You know, we've talked a lot about the, the population surge along our coast of people who aren't quite as, um, as native Southerners as we are. Um, is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Is it something the general assembly needs to tweak and turn? Why is it even worthy of consideration? Philip, I'll start with you. Well, I don't know. Uh, I think the Senate has taken it up. I and, think the Senate yeah, has. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you get it in a way when you're in an extremely fast growing place, people show up and they expect to have all the infrastructure in place. Well, that's on the backs of the people who have lived there, have paid their taxes, and, and got those infrastructures put in place. So the roads, the sewer, the water, all the stuff that, that makes society flow and go are in place. But they're busting at the seams and have been for 10 straight years. And and the folks that come in, you know, they pay some tax. There's a lot of taxes generated down there, sales tax and things like that. And, and they have local sales tax down there that helps with their own infrastructure but they've not been able to keep up with that growth. I understand why a person from the beach would put that in. Uh, otherwise, I mean, how do you get more schools? How do you get those things that have to be ready when people arrive? Not just, okay, we'll wait 10 years until you've paid your share and then we'll do these things. Cause Jay, it would create a financial hardship on the state to build the necessary infrastructure. I'm talking about education, highways and, and bridge, whatever. I mean, the, 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 the infrastructure the government's responsible for, I mean, I'm not saying it would break the bank, but it would get expensive in a hurry. 
Well, it already has gotten expensive. If you look at the growth um, along the coast primarily, uh, it has gotten extremely expensive. And infrastructure is not getting any cheaper. It's only going up. In my heart, I'm all for this concept. I'd say, you know, I'd, I'd say I used to say, let's create a system where you can only set have a set number of Yankees you let in at any given time, and when we're full, we'll make them wait at the line. <laughs> well, you can come in when the next but one. But does goes it out. meet equal protection under the no, law? I, unfortunately, or not unfortunately, I, I think there is a Pandora's box, so to speak. Here, it probably does not meet equal protection under the Explain law. Explain that as a lawyer. Uh, you, you can't, in, in very simple terms, you can't treat you can't treat people differently. Um, you're not supposed to at least, and you're, you're creating a subset of people that you're taxing at a different rate than another group of people. That's the most, that's the simplest I can say. And you don't think it passes the mustard. In other words, if the, if the Senate were to take it up and pass it, the house were to, to, to pass it, somebody's going to sue, somebody's oh, going to file a suit and you don't think it meets, um, it meets the smell test of passing the judicial branch. Not as it's currently written. I, okay. I, I doubt it. Does. That's kind of interesting. It, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to theorize about these things. And, and it, you know, it's just one of these, Philip, if I were hired by a, a lobbying firm, I could be for or against. I mean, in all honesty, it's one of these complex issues that I could see some some merit on both sides of the equation. Speaking of the budget, um, you brought your computer today. And um, and your job is not only – I want to give Philip some, some, some praise here. Your job is to not only spend the state's money. Your job is to spend the state's money and make sure the district you're representing is is not taken care of but it's not disadvantaged. Is that is that kind of a fair accounting of what you're there to do on the Ways and Means Committee? Well, obviously, you know, I've got a section of the budget under me. It's criminal justice, all the law enforcement things. Uh, and, and so that's my first obligation is to get that part of the budget done. And, and then we start thinking about potential projects that help us back home. And this year, you know, workforce is really the, the words that are under. And that's what our whole delegation has decided to get behind but from the criminal justice side of the, you know there's there's major areas retention and recruitment and law enforcement has been an issue last year we had a 17 percent increase in the starting pay raise this year we added to that and, and we got a 15 percent so that's going to begin to really make a difference as a matter of fact i heard they've been advertising in states up north where they're defunding the police and those uh officers are not happy and and they're coming to a place that that takes care of the blue um other things we looked at were i think the i think the base salary now in law enforcement would be fifty thousand dollars uh a year that's a that's a pretty good start i mean i know they gave teachers raises this year too state employees got some raises and the fact is you know we're chasing the the problems that are created by inflation now wage inflation uh, it, it's pulling people left and right. Uh, it, funny, Honda came up because it was Florence Week in the State House this week, and they came up and said, you know, they had 250 openings. Honda's here, an established plant. There's 250 openings. How are we going to attract major businesses to here if we don't improve our workforce? So that's uh, that's on the, the local level side. Um, we helped out with correctional office. Think about this fact with correctional offices. They had 49% turnover rate in correct department of corrections juvenile justice had a 63 percent turnover rate with their officers yeah you've got to do something to plug those holes or or the prisoners are running the prison at that point there's no one there to watch them and and i've heard tales many many days where people serve their eight or 12 hour shift and they say well there's no one showed up we, we, we they just beg them to stay and we have to pay them overtime and all this so we, we're trying to plug that hole safety 
and security, the, the resource officers for the school classrooms is important. Also, we funded the final leg of funding an officer to be in every school in South Carolina with SRO. So I'm excited about that. And, you know, we can't forget about conservation and preservation. We're as a fast growing state. Now we're losing a lot of the beautiful lands and, and <clears throat> these lands can't be replaced. Of course. I mean, we, land is limited and developments take up that it, it goes from a forest to a parking lot. And, and so we've got to put aside money and we did that again through the conservation bank and through department of natural resources, putting some money into there. So I'm, I'm proud of all of that. It, now, now locally, I think Jay and I, all of the delegation have talked about what does Florence need. And, and we're supportive of, uh, of Florence Darlington tech, get the building for a lot of jobs that are ready made. And this is critical for, for industry. And I'll, you know, I mean, Francis Marion has always been getting a good amount. We take care of them and they were fully funded this year in the budget. But I'm proud to say that we've got a, a, a building ready, funded, ready for, uh, for France, for, uh, Darlington Tech to get something going there. But, too. but let's explain this for people that don't understand it. You, you're on the ways and means. You go to Jay. Jay agrees to support the funding of a project at Tech. I mean that you know once again you've got a and I want to applaud you for those. Um, I mean the law enforcement, um, corrections officers. That's the core function of government. I mean I don't care how conservative you are. Got to agree that we need those people doing the job and we need them doing a good job. But then all of a sudden you got to put on this other hat. You know, and, and my job is to look after my district and my home communities, and that's who sends me back to Columbia every every two years. So, so I want to I want to educate people just a second. So, so Philip and Jay have an idea about you know, um, there's X number of dollars available. Um, we got some seniority. There's a way to help tech uh, more ably provide a workforce. None of that matters if it doesn't get held on to in the Senate, right? I mean, it goes to the Senate. Somebody either fights for that or they don't. We, we've got a new senator. He's not here today. Don't want to put him on the – well, if he were, I would put him on the spot because I think he needs to know or we need to know whether or not he'll fight for – because in essence, guys, you ready, conservatives? This is somewhat of an earmark. I mean, th- th- this is kind of um, – I mean, this is a, a local delegation finding uh, a percentage of the pot of money to invest in what they believe is in the community's best interest regarding um, workforce. Jay and Philip. Jay uh, – Philip's kind of spoken in there's nothing you can do once it leaves one side of the state house and goes to the other. It's up to the Senate now to hold on to that. At that point, that's right. This is a, a two-part, three-part process, and ultimately the governor gets to weigh in as well. So, yes, uh, the House, the budget starts in the House. Uh, I applaud and, and am thankful for the hard work Philip does. Philip is the person, the kind of person you want working on the budget in the state of South Carolina. He's someone who's owned, his, owned a business. You know, like you say, Ken, sometimes he signed the – the front of the check, not the back of the check. He understands uh, that, that, and he'll scrap a little bit. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, that, that's that's money, hard-earned money, taxpayer dollars. Some of which is ours, as we sit around this table, and and the people of Florence and the people of South Carolina. And so there's a responsibility there to make sure that money is used wisely. If you look back over the last couple of years, I think we've employed sort of a a process. You know, um, last year it was about economic development. What can we do to put Florence County on a better footing for economic development? I think we were successful in that. I think most people would agree we were successful in that, at least played a part in that. Now comes the next phase of it. Now when we're looking at um, what's the next phase, it's work uh, work preparedness. We need to make sure that the fo- when the jobs come, as they are coming, 
uh, to South Carolina and now to Florence and hopefully more to Florence that we have a prepared workforce ready to go to work and do the jobs that are coming to town. I go back in time, even before that, Florence was uh, invested in infrastructure. That's also part of this. So you've got all these different components, whether it be infrastructure, education, workforce development, that go into this concept of using taxpayer dollar wi- dollars wisely. Well said. Well explained. Let's take a break. Our first break of the morning, two of our three delegations. Yeah. If the good senator, if you see the good senator, tell him we need that money to bomb to be held on to when it gets over to the Senate side. Back in a minute. Text Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. These two in front of me are not members of NATO, so we're not going to talk about, you know, Russian expansionism or the Cold War or, you know, whatever it takes. But I do want to go back to the budget. Um, Philip is on the Ways and Means. Um, Jay chairs the, I mean, you're on judiciary. I know that, but are you chairing? Uh, there's a committee you chair. Ethics. Okay, the Ethics Committee. Jay's chair of the Ethics Committee and a very active member of the judiciary because he is a attorney by trade. I want to go back to this because I think it's interesting for people to understand um, how the game is played, how the system works. So you talked about funding um, law enforcement. You talked about funding uh, corrections officers. That is the That is the normal job of government. But then there's money set aside for projects. And that's where the scrapping gets in. That's where, you know, um, Philip and Jay and Mike, I would imagine, agree that these are going to be the district's priorities. This is the area's priority. And then you've got to go fight tooth and nail. Um, we're not talking about funding law enforcement, not talking about funding um, corrections. We can argue about how many we need and what they need to make. But that's, an, I mean, that's, that's the job of the government. But, but Philip, when we get to the spending on projects, kind of walk me through your role, and then I'll get Jay to walk I mean, through his role on fighting, I don't want to say for the scraps, but but for things that people believe are most important in their said districts. Well, first, there are about 70 agencies that are state agencies across the state. That request funding. That, that request funding. And if they get funded, that's not a project. That's, that's something that they've requested. And if it gets funded through the budget, then that's on a line. Nobody has to sign their name beside that requesting that. If you re- request a project in your area, so so Florence District One Schools came to me and said, "Hey, we we've got a project that's a regional project, and I don't want to steal any thunder or, or anything. It's still behind the scenes, but it's a regional. It's not just hey, fund Florence District One over all the rest of the state. That's not really fair. But something that reaches out that 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 other uh, school districts and even other counties can participate in becomes." important to the state in its own way but it's more important regionally and that's what we refer to as a project you have to request that uh, i would have to put my name on it i have to say what agency is getting it and and answer several questions about it and then that it flows through a state agency of some sort one of the 70 agencies and that money then goes to could be florence county and if or it could be Florence District 1, then they're responsible for reporting and accounting all of the money that's spent, how, where it went to, how much was where, and, and report that back to the agency. And then we get that report back. Now, we don't police everything as though you know we're supervising all those expenses, but that's the way projects are, are, are expended. Uh, let's do this. Um, when it comes to talking about law enforcement, I mean, you got a funding of law enforcement, but I would imagine there could be projects associated with law enforcement. Is that fair, Jake? Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest thing is to give you a couple examples. You know, 
couple years ago. Um, Philip did a great job walking through the process. I put my name on a request for some um, firearms for law enforcement. Law enforcement. The sheriff came and said we were short on these these firearms, and you know that's something that you know I, I think Philip would tell you he doesn't have any trouble fighting for on ways and means. And then when it comes to the house floor, um, if you can make a good case as to the needs of the the folks that are charged with protecting your community, think something a core need like like firearms. Uh, those things are, for the most part, things that uh, the, the body wants to help you make sure your community has. Uh, the more recent one, I think, some body cams. Uh, that, that was another thing we, we um, put on the line and got some funding for. So, again, examples of core government needs back home um, are money well spent. Well, let me ask you this, Philip. I want to go back because I want to get Jay's take on this as well. So there are how many members of the House? 124. Okay, 124 of you have ideas. You have uh, um, projects. You have things you believe are most important. When the scrap starts, hypothetically, let's say there's a billion dollars left to fund projects, and there's $2 billion worth of wants. In other words, the, the House member from Greenville says, Philip, mine's more important than yours. And you says, no, it's not. And the scrap starts. Walk me through how that normally takes place. Well, um, I mean, projects would never be... Uh, even a tenth of the whole budget. Correct. I mean, it just it's not that huge a number, but it is. It's meaningful money to places that can't get it. I mean, you talk. Go go ask Olana how they're going to replace their police car. They go. I don't know. You know, it's running on fumes and and uh, can't find spare parts for it. So all that kind of stuff is it, out there. There are places that don't have money. The places that do. I mean, you look at Performing Arts Center. Well, they say that's a that's kind of a. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful thing for for Florence. We've all been to concerts there, and Big Dog Leatherman got it right. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's more difficult to get. Law enforcement's easy, and uh, so it's easy because people universally, at least certainly on the Republican side, agree that we should be funding government, taking care of them. Uh, so uh, we've got some projects that we're looking at here. I'll promise you, they the people around us who are asking us to get these things have asked for five times more than I can ever get. I don't care how big a dog you are on ways and means, but there's limits. I mean, you've got you got to be somewhat fair in the division of these monies around the state for projects. And, and law enforcement's one that I know Rickenball is very interested in because he, you know, he's been in law enforcement for years, and and he's expressed interest in helping them. So maybe, you know, so he'll have an opportunity sooner than later to help hold on to a, uh, a project when it makes its way from the house to the Senate. Cause our first budget, we have not had a chance to budget to, to vet those projects that have been asked for Correct. in the house. So we're going to be vetting those and, and, and thinking about them and, and making sure they're going to places we think should have money and all, but, but then the Senate will actually return the bill to us, the budget to us. And, and if, if Mike has re- supported something like a, a law enforcement, then we would see that and we would know, okay, he's covered some wants that are there in law enforcement. We can help with this, that, and the other. But, you know, tech and Francis Marion, those are not projects. Those are things that agencies have asked for, where projects are something special that this area is wanting. We, we get requests from all forms of government well jay you guys have been kind enough or crazy enough to include me in a few conversations dinners with the three of you um and, and i've kind of facilitated some of the uh not i mean i think i think the reason i'm there is i know how the senate works and mike's a new a new senator so i can advise him on how to make sure 
He's um, carrying the water for his district and constituents and, and also doing what he thinks is right because that, ultimately that's his, that's his priority and his prerogative. But, but I want to go back to something that, that I heard all three of you say, and I'm impressed you've stuck with. And I ain't blowing smoke. I mean, I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's not my job, and you don't need that. But, but the one thing you guys said a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago was the commitment to economic development. And the first thing was having properties available. In other words, having checks and boxes where potential suitors came and we didn't have a multitude of questions and uncertainties. The second phase was providing an adequate and educated workforce. Do you feel we are on target in regards to those two priorities as we work through this next budget? You know, it's one of those things we'll see. Time will tell. I don't think we'll know the complete truth and answer to that until we see the results of, of the work we're, we're getting into this. I can tell you, in looking back at it, I think um, phase one, yes. I think we, we all came together, as you described, and said we're going to make economic development a priority. And I think we, we can point to uh, success well, associated. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a billion-dollar investment that would not have happened had you guys not made the commitment you did. So, so there's a checkbox. There's a check in that box. Um, we're in the next phase of that, which is the educational uh, component of that. You know, Philip described money for District 1, money for tech, for, money for Francis Marion, for them to, to be prepared and to, to uh, do their part in this next phase of the project or the, or the step in the process. So time will tell. I think we're, we put our heads in the right direction and we're working hard to do that. But again, time will tell. And Philip, I mean, as the budget comes to you, You've got to maintain that vision. Am I right? I mean, you've got to always say, okay, here's what we committed to. Here's the amount of money we have. How can we best allocate? Oh, a better word, how can we best invest taxpayer dollars in what our priorities are? You know, the, the first thing we had to do was reserve money. Remember, we passed a bill, that, a, a constitutional amendment to put more money aside for the rainy day. So we start out there, and you have to take care of some of those responsibilities with Medicaid I'll tell you, you know, we're continuing with the, the income tax reduction as we had planned. So we're going to have more tax reduction this year. We're funding roads. We've tripled the amount that's coming to the county to fund our local roads. Uh, teachers are getting a raise. There's a lot of great things in this budget. I'll tell you what we really resisted. That was actually growing government. The growing government part of this means you're hiring a whole bunch of people and, and we had requests from all around, and, and they just flat got most everything got turned down in the growing government portion of this how, for hiring how, a bunch more employees. How important is it to the two of you? We're kind of looking inside the belly of the beast now. I mean, how important is it to the two of you to, to project revenue numbers? I mean, that's not your job, but we have the Board of Economic Advisors. I mean, I read a, a lot of things every day about the forward-looking economy. There's a reason not to be alarmed but be a little bit concerned about what might lie ahead as we kind of work our way through this year. In other words, some of the uh, forecasters that I trust are saying revenues could be down in the second half of this year. Are y'all hearing anything similar to that? And how do you prepare for that? Uh, that's a good question. And, and what I'll say is we're cautious and we're going to put aside, we're going to put aside more than the state requires just in case. But the, to finish out this state, as soon as they get the April 15th tax returns in, they're predicting that we're going to have more money. That'll be one-time money. So they're talking out both sides of the mouth. They're being, we're being cautious, but at the same time, they're saying we think there's more to come. I'll tell you this. Our area got over $200 million last year. $200 million from the state. You know where 
it went into industry, went into all these projects. We've never had that much money. That's a, a record-breaking amount of money, and we're funding those industrial parks. I, I looked down and I said, and Jay and I were on this team when we met a year ago, and it was, how much do you need to get these right? And they told us, and we fully funded all their requests. Uh, and, and, of course, this, this plant that's coming to town with the battery plant, they got $180 million, I believe, from the state. But it's a billion-dollar investment. It is. And that's, that, I mean, to me, that's making an investment in your community as a, um, as a government agency. Jay, I'll shift gears to you, and then we'll, we'll take a break. I mean, uh, it's easy. I don't say it's easy. It's easier to govern in good times. Certainly. Uh, and, and it's yeah. more difficult when you think there may be a financial storm brewing. There's some out there that believe that the good times are not over for good. It's ain't a Merle Haggard song, but but maybe, just maybe, we're going to see somewhat of a um, a, a decline in, in government revenue in, in the not-too-distant future. Well, I'll go back to something I was talking about a minute ago, be that good, being responsible, being a good steward of the funds. That also being uh, means uh, – projecting and looking forward and investing in what's coming down the path. There's a very functional reason too, a very practical reason we do that. And because we're not Washington, DC, we, we aren't allowed to spend money. We don't have, we don't print money. We're required under the law to balance our budget. So there's a very practical reason why we have to be prepared and look and see, uh, as to what's coming, what, what funds are coming in and what's going out so that we can be balanced at the end of every budget. Let me ask you this. Last question, then we'll take a break, then we'll go to a call. Um, will 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 the House or Senate require some sort of oversight over the $3.5 billion um, accounting mistake? Oh, absolutely. I don't think we've heard the end of that. I know House oversight is planning. Uh, I think that's going to be a very long several days, if not weeks, for the folks. Because uh, we don't know the truth, do we, Jay? Well, and not just that we don't know the truth. Um, I think there was a delay in reporting what we now know. And so anytime is, it's not just getting to the facts of what you, but it's also when you knew and what you knew, uh, and did you not have a responsibility to tell, um, the legislature, the, the people of South Carolina, what you knew, when you knew it. And we, at least there was, it appears they were dragging of the dragging their feet on what they conveyed when they knew it. And Philip, that's what I hear a lot. I mean, if you make a mistake on the mistake, explain the mistake, let's make it right. They didn't do that. Well, he should have done it in front of the election rather than behind. I don't even think he had anybody running against him, but don't know that it would have made a difference. But he should have told it earlier, I think, the public and let it out. But we've passed a proviso on ways and means to help deal with this and reporting and, and set in some, some requirements for them to report to us where we can look at some of this. But we don't use his numbers because that's really more for – I guess for bonding and things like that, we don't use them. The, the BEA doesn't use his numbers. Uh, so it didn't affect how much money we, we have. We don't look at how much is in the bank. We look at what's coming in next year. Good deal. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence, you are on with your delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. So there are several states uh, with a zero income tax. Um, and I, I know um, Philip likes to argue that the devil's in the details, and it certainly is. Um, I think um, Texas, Florida, Tennessee all have zero income tax, and they're they're booming quite well. And there's probably other um, uh, other things going on. I, I know Ron DeSantis is a um, a very polarizing figure, but he also uh, is. Uh, 
young people with children, young conservatives like um, the way education is going in Florida. Um, but as we deal with perception as reality, do we need to explore uh, the zero income tax to make ourselves marketable? Because I don't think marketing, well, the devil's in the details, really resonates well with people. I know we've done quite well with retirees, but retirees don't work in industry. They, they work at Walmart as a greeter. Um, and I don't know how much they're really adding to the state. Um, and Myrtle Beach is going to not fare well as baby boomers begin to die off unless we figure out how to replace them with something else down there. But anyways, I just want to know about your thoughts on the zero income tax. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Hey, I'll, uh, full disclosure, you ready? I told Philip and Jay one day at lunch, I said, if I ran for governor, I'm not, but if I were, I'd run on replacing the state income tax with a 1% statewide economic transaction tax. And, and, and theoretically or philosophically, I think you guys were like, okay, I mean, let's talk about it. Let's, let's, let's find a better way to be more competitive. I mean, th- these guys are all about being more competitive. I mean, you know who you're competing with for private sector jobs. Philip, I'll let you go first. Is it worth considering? I mean, are you always considering how to make the taxing system better and sound, more competitive? In South Carolina, I, I guess the when you get into sales tax, what you would have to do to raise a similar amount of money is eliminate all the exemptions. We have a hundred and something exemptions of sales tax, and that includes services. So most of these states that he's talking about have taxes on services too. So you go into your doctor and you pay him a hundred dollars for a visit. And you pay him ten more dollars that he's got to turn over to the state or some, or to entities for sales tax. And so, I mean, how much of that do you want? I mean, it, it, I guess the right now we have maybe forty three percent of the total income generated is is income tax, and then you know fifty three, fifty seven, or whatever percent uh, of sales tax. Um, I, I'm for sales tax because. Well, I've got a decent income, and it, it benefits me. Well, you know, the Democrats and the poorer people are, are saying, well, you know, there's a lot of exemptions on income tax, so don't stick more sales tax on me or I'm paying too much. So it devil it is in the details, and the details basically come out of how much comes out of your pocket. That's the tax taxing method you prefer. What, what is it? I don't what's mind Yankee, you paying a lot of taxes. I just don't want what's to. What's the Yankee tax? Make the Yankees pay it. <laughs> it, it what, what the Democrats say? Make the rich people pay it. And so it's about, you have to look at where you're at on it as to which one you'd like. But it, it could be done, but it's a difficult system to do all at once. But, Jay, uh, at the end of the day, is to be more competitive. Is that fair? Well, let me back up. I don't like any tax, I don't, especially ones I pay, <laughs> which I pay all of them, it feels like, like everybody else. Um you know, one of the things when we cut taxes last year and began a path of cutting uh, more to come, so to speak, one of the things I liked about that, uh, just putting aside the fact we were cutting taxes, was that I felt like it would put us in a place as we shrunk the income tax to have a discussion at some point about now that it's shrinking, can we not go to a place where we can get more to a transactional tax, as you described, a sales tax type situation, and abandon an income income tax structure i've always felt like that's a penalty for people to you know go work harder and the harder you work the more we're going to take uh, and i just don't at the end of the day love that concept now the now also i agree with philip the devil's absolutely in the details and you i don't i don't know that we can look at a state like florida we, we just don't match up well with a state like florida a lot more people a lot more 
you know, I mean, doesn't, I mean doesn't Texas, just, Texas is 25 million, Florida's 22 million. Is Tennessee similar? I mean, I think you could learn some things from looking that's at what Tennessee. I, I think we need to look more at Tennessee and that model to see if there's things about it we could employ here in South Carolina. But at the end of the day, absolutely, it is all about being more competitive, especially within the southeastern region. Okay, I got to carry, carry. We got one minute, right, Rev? We're going to the dark side for a second. Philip, I'll ask you first. You're not a lawyer. What do you make of the uh, the Murdoch trial thus far? Wow. Uh, <laughs> this guy is a crook, first of all. I think he knows something about the deaths. You know, I don't know that he pulled the trigger. That's probably as short as I can put it. Cool. If, I, if I were a betting man, as a matter of fact, I'll look online to see if I could find bets in Vegas just to kind of get a clue what's going on. It, it was 50-50 to be a hung jury, uh, and but being guilty it, it wasn't wasn't a high percentage thought that you've been to the courtroom much many more times than we have jay you know the, the uh the state is proven with proving him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 people uh that defense team's looking to get one person to say i'm not voting him guilty under any circumstances and that equals a hung jury and that's the same as uh, and that, that's all they need to get for right now be on chair quarterback 15 seconds have they spent too much time convincing people way, he committed the crime he's already pled guilty way to. too much they've convinced everybody including him he's a bad guy he's a crook he's a thief and he's a liar but they hadn't convinced everybody he's a murderer well explain thanks to both of you we'll take a break right rev i hear the music in the background we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few with our decompression hour on friday we could have played the whole thing couldn't we rev yeah, no doubt about that could have played boys of summer in its entirety okay let's do this you ready hmm? um you and i like debating these issues so forget the Eagles for a second. I mean, you and I could argue about the five best songs uh, they've ever had together. I mean, the Hotel California sure. obviously would, would come to mind. Um, Take It Easy would be another one that comes to um, to mind. But when you break down the solo careers of Don Henley, Glenn Frey, and um, Joe Walsh, is what is the best song the members of the Eagles had when they weren't the Eagles? The solo project. The solo project. What is the single best, your single favorite song of those? I mean, I would imagine you're talking about Walsh, Fry, and Henley. Um, is there a song you like better than the others? I there, mean, Heart of the Matter. There you know, is for the me. End of the Innocents. Uh, Life's Been Good. Uh, Rocky Mountain High. Life's Been Good. Yeah. That's interesting. That that would be, ah, I like the End of the Innocents. I'm not, I think no that's, a, that's a phenomenal song. I also like Smuggler's Blues. That would be kind of an interesting. Not a, it can't be a trivia question because there is no uh, there is no right or wrong answer. It's um it's a matter of opinion and it's totally um subjective. But um so who had the better career mm. outside of the Eagles? Would it have been Fry Henley? See, I say Glenn Fry because Fry he had, acted. And there you go. He there, acted there and had that's right solo hits. He had some cinematic success, Rev. Didn't he? He did. I mean, he was on um Miami Vice. Miami Vice and a couple of other things. And um I mean, I, you know. Henley was out saving the whales and trees and the planet. Yeah, but had, had a out. heck of a solo career. Oh, no question about it. Well, I mean, one of the great lines in the um, in the documentary on Netflix uh, about the Eagles is when, what is it, Don Felder? Yep. He and Fry, I mean, they just started getting really on one another's nerves, and they didn't like one another much at all. And Elder came to Fry and said, I don't like the fact that I'm not singing as much as I did, man. And Fry basically said, Don Henley's in the band. You ain't singing as much <laughs> as you used to. I'm not going to sing as much as I used to. There's another dude that's a better singer than either of us. But um, 
But but I still believe this because we're talking about the Eagles. I actually sat around the fire with my boys and we're talking about the Eagles and Queen and all these other and all these other bands. And they were trying to understand the infatuation that we have with the Eagles. And I explained it the best way I know how. They basically wrote the soundtrack of our growing up. But they did. The Eagles, uh, their songs remind me of the seventh grade and the eighth grade and the ninth grade and the tenth grade. And I can remember. I mean, imagine. I mean, you're getting older. I remember when Hotel California came out. I mean, I remember the album cover. I remember the first time I heard it on the, ah, maybe not the first time I heard it on the radio, but, um, but I mean, they wrote the soundtrack to our, to our growing up, not our lives, but, but our, our, our growing up. And, um, and so I asked both of my boys, I said, how many Eagle songs you got in your Apple iTunes? And they had about as many as, um, as I did just one of the iconic and great bands of all time. But the, the documentary led me to believe, and, uh, and I'd always thought it was Fry Henley and everybody else, but the documentary led me to believe it's Fry Henley, Joe Walsh, and everybody else. And I think most people who aren't Eagle aficionados underestimate the significance of adding Glenn, uh, Joe Walsh to the band. Right. Uh, I, the I edge. Just, I mean, he just he, he brought in. He gave him an edge. Well, I mean, you know, they, they, the producers were saying, hey, man, you guys want to be a rock band, but you're not. You're just not a rock band. You're, you're kind of a um a country folk, California sound. I mean, we don't really know where to put you and um, until they got Joe Walsh, and then they became a full-fledged rock and roll band uh, with still a little bit of a, a country flair. You would agree? Yeah. A, a little bit of a, sure. a, an Americana flair would yeah. probably be a better way. A better way to say. I, it. I like it. I like it. Is somebody on the phone? Ron in Florence. Hello, Ron. Hey, uh, you guys met that on uh, Seven Bridges Road. That's the best harmony ever. I just love that song and the way they harmonize. So that was my thought. Good deal. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. No question about yeah. it. And um, and in the documentary, in the documentary, they sing it like in the dressing well, room, I mean, right? But but the guy, the guy that um that, that basically was asked to go listen to the Eagles. I mean, somebody recommended this producer go listen to the Eagles. And he goes and he says they're singing. I'm going like, okay, I mean they're they're good, but I mean there are a lot of good bands like that. And he said they started that harmony. And he said right then I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. But he even was concerned about what genre, you know, where where do they land? Yeah, I mean in the old days I've read this about John Prine being a big fan of singer songwriters. The biggest problem John Prine had was radio didn't know where to put him. I mean it, there's not a big commercial folk business, right? That, that you know, and, and, right but, about but that. I mean, you could you could honestly say he was a folk singer. Yeah, um, he was not a country singer. He was not a pop singer. Not a rock it's, singer. Just not very commercial. So, so so where is he? You know what I mean? And and, and I you know I've read a lot about Prine and and, and basically I mean, the reason Prine had somewhat of a niche following it'd be a little bit like Jimmy Buffett. You know, Buffett had this coastal influence, this beach lifestyle sort of thing that um created a loyal following. But but John Prine would be a little bit what the Eagles were prior to Joe Walsh being there the the producers and promoters were concerned about okay you guys are a good band a lot of good bands i'm not sure if you're rock folk country um this kind of bakersfield california sound that you've been influenced by and then they add joe walsh in i mean you know he was a, a, a lead guitarist for a rock and roll band and they took off and the rest as we say in pamphlet mm-hmm. and paris is histoire let's go to the vault david in the pd hello david Hey man, best uh, my opinion, best Eagle song is one of these nights. And uh, didn't the Henley have a song called "All She Wants to Do Is Dance"? Yep, he did. Yeah, sure. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. That kind of explains Ukraine. Kind of explains our government. 
Ken, I, I'm sure you're going to talk about this Murdoch trial. Um, man, it's, I grew up in that 14th judicial circuit, whatever that is. I'm neighboring county, grew up close to Hampton. And when you think of, they were talking about Sockahatchee yesterday. That's the road that Eddie or whatever shot in this, that. When I think of Sockahatchee and, and I think of, they've got a branch campus there. I took a couple classes there. Uh, so this is to my heart when I, I watch this. I grew up in this area, and I'm sure you watched some of this testimony when when they were asking him, and all of a sudden Paul was Paul, and we're talking about Maggie and Mags and the Duck Pond and uh, Buster. My mind went to the Andy Griffith show. I don't know why, but I guess they're trying to make him look innocent, and then they were talking about the dogs. You got a dog named Bubba, dog named Grady. I don't know why my mind went to Sanford and Son. But, I, again, I grew up in this world, and when I would meet people, they would ask me, says, what, what is living in that area like? And I used to say it's like it's a combination of Andy Griffith and Sanford and Son. Very simple. Uh, there's a lot of black people there. But guess what? You know, the beauty of this, uh, we lived in a post-segregation world, public schools. Black people and white people got along great. Uh, I don't remember any kind of gangs. I don't remember drugs. I don't remember any of this stuff back in the day. But what's sad about this, Murdoch, this is showing you what I call the litigation industry. I mean, there's nothing going down there except for what I'm going to tell you about. The litigation industry, a law enforcement industry, there's prisons down there. There's a federal prison. There's a state prison in this area. Uh, the finance industry, and you know what I'm talking about, I'm going to mention these names, but there's people who got in trouble in that industry, the banking industry. But they don't have any kind of private sector manufacturing. And this is what Trump and everybody talks about. We don't want this country, because we don't have private sector manufacturing, to end up like this little 14th judicial circuit. So I'll leave you that. You have a good weekend. It's kind of, thank you, David. Appreciate it. It's kind of a uh, an interesting look into the world of um, I mean, I told Rev yesterday we did some things related to the podcast. We actually had the engineer come by, and Rev's talking about where to put this and where to put that. And I sat here in my chair, you know, and make sure I don't get in the way of this or get in the way of that. Because we're, I mean, we're going live in a living color less than two weeks from today. I mean, we will be up and running in about ten days or so. Um, and and so 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 Rev and Stu are doing all their work in here, and Wayne's in here, and I'm in here in the way, and uh, I'm trying to watch the uh, the deposition. Excuse me, the uh, the testimony. Of, uh, Alec yeah, we, we were interrupting you. Sorry, and, and about you were, that. and uh, this is my little, you know, three feet square space that I want to try to claim in your as my own. Yeah, and, you know, people walk by back, go to the to the computer, go to the printer, go to the whatever, you know, the storage room back here behind me. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here. I mean, I mean, I'm left alone until ten. But when I stay after ten, I realize that nobody has any respect for my my, my little domain. It, it's here. the flashing red light outside of your studio when it's on. You know, your your microphones are on and you're live. Other than that, it's just fair game. Yeah, Walk well, right and, on and in. And there's, the, the studio's what, a 10 by 10? Yeah. And there's close. three doors and two windows? <laughs> so there ain't no privacy. I'll assure you of that. I'm not exaggerating. There's three doors and two windows in this studio, but it's all by design. And Rev put a lot of thought into this. So we're we're doing the work necessary to get ready for our podcast. And uh, I mean, we're actually podcasting right now as we speak, practicing, uh, looking into the camera directly at our at our audience. But, um, but, but I told Rev yesterday... The Murdoch trial reminded me some of the language and lingo. I mean, I you know, it's obviously the Murdoch family is rural. I am very rural. Um, don't mistake in rural for dumb. Don't do that. Do that at your own peril. 
I, I don't say that in an arrogant way, but don't you ever mistake somebody who says ain't y'all for being dumb. Um, that Rev's nodding his head. I mean, Rev, Rev kind of gave me a, a backhanded compliment earlier this morning. We we're talking about uh, plundering, you know, who plunders around the world. And Rev says, well, I mean, you do you're it pretty good. At it. I don't know if I'm the best at it, but um, just, you could argue. Well, anyway, um, when, when, when Alec Murdoch started testifying, it sounded like I was back at AA Builders building truck beds in Pamplico because he's talking about the shed. That's where we kept the tools and the tractor. You know, the tractor stayed on that, the shed with the red roof. Everything's got a name, but nothing has an official name. And I told Rev, we kept the, um, the forklift keys behind the, um, the drink machine in the back. <laughs> what do you mean the drink machine in the back? Well, I mean, everybody knew where the drink machine in the back was and where the wall was and, and where you kept the keys. Where are the tires? Um, they're in that van body beside the wide part of the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody knew everybody exactly, knew exactly what you meant. Where, where, uh, you know, the, the van body beside the van body beside the wide part of the ditch. And then they would, uh, we even had a name for this. So check this out. Um, where are those two red pickup beds? They own that corner of the land that we don't own. <laughs> there was a farmer and and the ditch ran a little bit further and the other ditch ran a little bit further so we kind of claimed that as our own because there's no way he could farm it we knew him i mean he was a neighbor of ours so that little part of property became known as the corner of the farm the corner of the land we don't own hmm. so when somebody would say hey where's that red ford bed it's in the corner where that land we don't own so, so when you hear alec murdoch talk about moselle and i told rev rev, rev talks about plundering and being interesting I am always suspicious of people who name their homes. I'm, I'm How's sorry. That? How's I, I'm, that? Just, I'm suspicious of anybody who names their home. I'm sorry. I mean, you may be out there listening to my voice. You may name your home. I'm damn suspicious of you. I've just got a level with you. So you've got um, Greenleaf and Almeida and Moselle. And there's just a certain something or other that concerns me. That makes me look at you a little bit more suspiciously than I normally would if you've got homes that you've named. I understand naming kids. I mean, I get that. Naming dogs. I get that. Nicknames. I mean, I get all that. <laughs> the Rev. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say how many nicknames are in my phone. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I, some, my, my daughter got my phone one day, and, um, and I think I had Nuke Gingrich, Rudy Giuliani, and um, Gizmo and Guinea. <laughs> We're all on the, on the same oh, page. And my daughter said, I know two of those. Who are the other two? I said, well, Gizmo quit in the 11th grade, so I didn't graduate with him. <laughs> but Guinea worked with us for about six or eight years. And, and, um, and how many times do people ask me, why does he call you Rev? Well, you remind me of a Baptist preacher. I mean, I was, I was raised in a Baptist church that, you know, and, and one of our pastors convinced me that God had a sledgehammer. And every time I got a line or out of line, he was going to slam me in the head with it. And he had this voice. Very similar to what Revs had. Revs has a very um, distinguished voice. I mean, he has a voice for radio. No question, no question about it. I don't. Um, but we, you know, we kind of feed off one another <laughs> there. But, 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 you know, I think I think Jay Jordan did a good job in um, in kind of thumbnailing it, cliff noting it by saying that I don't have any doubt that Alec Murdoch stole money from clients. I don't have any doubt that Alec Murdoch stole money from law partners. Now, I do have doubt. You ready? I mean, this is not a bombshell because nobody cares what I think. I do have doubts as to whether the law partners knew or not. I'm beginning to question. Uh, I, I just know uh, backwood Southern lawyers. 
there there's a certain way they do things that isn't always by the book. I'm not incriminating anybody. I don't think I'm slandering or defaming anybody. But but as I've listened and learned, and here we go, Rev, you ready? Plundered. I, I've I've gained a belief or taken on a belief that people other than Alec Murdoch in that law firm knew something wasn't on the up and up. Now, were they getting a kickback? I, I don't have any idea. I, I, I can't begin, but something inside of me says, uh, no, those, some of those lawyers too slick know the money getting adding up. I mean, there's got to be some executive principal in the law firm you know, that knows when things aren't on the up and up. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just simply saying it, it would surprise me if Alec had taken money for as long as he did and nobody in that law firm genuinely knew and the moment the lady came with an accounting tab that didn't add up, every lawyer in that law firm said, do what? I mean, I would imagine every lawyer said, do what? But a couple of them were like, hmm, that took a long time, a lot longer than I ever imagined it would. But 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 what the state has done is a, a, a very and highly effective job of convincing me that Alec Murdoch is who I thought he was. He's a sociopath might be a psychopath, might be a monster. But all the crimes he's agreed that he committed, I don't know if he's pled guilty or not, but but all, I mean, he'll be charged eventually with, with some of these financial crimes. But I mean, he's already said he did it. So there's an admission there. Um, somebody asked me yesterday, well, if he knows he's going to jail the rest of his life, why would he be so defiant? Because he doesn't want to be the guy that killed his wife and kid. I mean, if you're the guy that stole money from law partners and clients, that's one thing. If you're the guy that stole money from law partners and clients and you killed your wife and kid, that's another thing, right? I mean, I understand you go to prison for the rest of your life, but, but I mean, there's some humanity here. And I think, you know, if he didn't do it, then he wants to defend himself. Um, I don't think anybody would dispute whether Alec Murdoch is one of the reasons. Is he the reason? I don't know. He's one of the reasons his wife and kid are dead. But did he pull the trigger? And that's what the state's trying to convince a jury of 12 peers of. And I don't think they've done it. I just don't. I'm more sure today now than I ever have been that he's who I thought he was. But but they're not saying he's, I mean, Ken, is he on trial for being a monster? Is he on trial for being a psychopath? Is he on trial for being a sociopath? Is he on trial for being a, a thief and, and a no good piece of crap? Is he on trial for being a, you know, j- just the most despicable human being on the face of the planet and history of mankind, he may be all those things, but that's not what he's on trial for. He's on trial for pulling the trigger and killing his wife and kid. And if you asked me, has he been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to have done that? My answer still today is no. See, it's, it's interesting. Can we believe he did it and still find him innocent? That's kind of an interesting, perplexing quandary that a lot of people find. I mean, I talk to people, and people say, I believe he did it, but they hadn't proven it yet. I mean, I, I really think he pulled the trigger. But I don't know that they've convinced me beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it. 843-661. Mm-hmm. Really, you're supposed to take the law as the judge charges you to as a juror, right, and make your decision based on that and the evidence and how you weigh the evidence. You're right. But but we're, we're what? Are we Vulcans? Nope. nope. We're not. We're, we're, you know, largely affected or impacted by our emotions. Take a break. Back in a few. Text Mondays to make Fridays 843-661-0937. A couple of callers 
on the phone at 9.30 on a Friday morning. Still got an audience. Wow. I know. Yeah. Is that surprising? Yeah, it does surprise me a lot. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Hey, Bob. Hey. Uh, hey, guys. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Um, I, a couple of things I want to touch on, observations I have about the uh, – you talking about people that name their homes. And, and over the over the days and weeks that we've been covering this trial, uh, you, you, you've spoken about uh, – Especially the way they pronounce names in that part of the part of the state, I think it has to do a lot with uh, those folks down there that are well-to-do tend to think of themselves as being some sort of uh, um, aristocracy. Um, it reminds me, especially of like uh, a Scottish aristocracy, where you know over in Scotland and in England. Every people that have money and have big estates, all of them have names, and and the way that the uh, Murdoch, Murdoch, or however you pronounce the name, Alec, it reminds me of Scott, uh, you know, kind of a Scottish brogue, as my grandmother would say, and uh, so so that's I, I think that's they're trying to pay some kind of homage back to the perhaps their their uh, their history, their family history, inheritance, and and where they were, where they came in from. And the other observation, real quick, is <clears throat> on the trial. In in the little world, in the universe that I rotate in, um, we haven't found any of our friends that believes that the state's proven anything. Other than, uh, as you've said, he's a bad guy. But also, well, I think what it's demonstrated is there are a lot, there are a lot of other people who may have had a reason to hurt him. You know, he was dealing in some with some bad people. Uh, maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was customers, <clears throat> or clients that got screwed over. Maybe it was another family that a member of his family had hurt. Um, it, it, if anything, I think that uh, it's, it's kind of blown up any re- reasonable doubt challenge. Because anyway, any way you look at it, um, uh, there, there's there's doubt there whether it could have been him. There's other people that had motive, and I'll hang up and listen. That's a lot of interesting observations, Bob. Thanks a lot. I mean, I do believe it reeks of um, rural southern uh, aristocracy. I mean, it really and truly does. And I'm not talking about the beach house you worked all your life. You get it. Somebody gives you a sign that says summer winds. You know, I mean, I get that. I mean, I understand that. That's a, um, I mean, you've worked all your life. You've always wanted a place at the beach. you got a place at the beach, um, you know, the um the bakers the bakers uh Bodai, whatever I mean I I understand all that I mean I I'm not but I mean they're, they're Moselle Greenleaf I mean it's some of these other sorts of things there's a certain unspoken arrogance there that that concerns me and and, and I do believe one of the contributing factors of this and I can't relate um if you live in an area and I'm talking about a, a judicial circuit and you've been entitled to live by a set of rules that nobody else can live by, there is a sense of invincibility. I mean, it, it, it is almost like I'm, I mean, I don't want to go down the road to North Korea and Kim Jong-un and the, you know, the, the, the I don't know, Rev, the, um, the psycho babble that we could use in talking about, I mean, how could a reasonable person believe that Kim Jong-un made a hole in one on every hole? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of that is fear. I mean, if you don't worship at the, at the altar of the dictator, I mean, you don't, you don't live any longer. So I get that. 
but, but I do believe that there's something about naming your home Moselle, Almeida, um, that, that reeks of a kind of, kind of a rural Southern aristocracy, but go a step further. I think more than that, it reeks of there's a set of rules for thee and a set of rules for me. And the rules that all of you have to live by ain't the rules that, that I live by. And when you listen to the kids and you've heard some of the testimony involving Paul, who turned into Paul Paul yesterday, um, and, and that's kind of a Southern thing. I mean, I got a certain way of talking. I mean, Rev laughs about, I mean, when I'm sitting around the fire with my, I mean, the friends I grew up with, you wouldn't understand it. <laughs> You'd swear, what the hell are they saying to one another? I mean, what, what did Guinea and Gizmo say, say to, you know, and, and you would say, what in the world are those people talking about? Now, now, I think the one thing the media does, they mistake some of these witnesses for being dumb, being uh, non-intelligent. I don't buy that for a second. I have been around a lot of uneducated people that would do exceedingly well on an IQ test if they took it. They're naturally intelligent. They're, they're, their place of birth there's um you know situation in life i mean i've told my son uh, one of my kids went to work i'd sold the business one of my kids went to work at my brother's truck body manufacturing plant that was my dad's half mine half my brother's i sell my half it's all my brothers uh one of my kids worked down there for a summer after i'd left the business and i told him i said hey there's this guy here's his name he barely got out of the ninth grade but had he been born in the right family setting and, and more encouraging situations he would have gone to harvard my son about two weeks later and said, hey, you remember what you said about him? Yeah, you're right. I said, I knew I was right. I worked with him 20 years. He was enormously bright. I mean, he could have done anything he chose to do had he had some sort of um, normal rearing and normal encouragement and parents that kind of, you know, rallied around him and his education. And I, and I got to believe that if that's the case in the PD rural section of South Carolina, it's certainly the case. In the, in the low country rural areas of South Carolina, another part about the low country, and, and I think it's, it's pretty obvious now, it's all about wetlands and hunting and fishing and the, you know, the marshes and the bays and the water and the rivers and the, you know, the estuary. I mean, everything goes to the ocean. And it's, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's a very, I, I'll give you an example. So I go to the south end of the beach a lot. And, and when I do go, a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to north end. And I got frustrated by the, the access at the north end. You got 31, you got 22, you got all these arteries now that get people in and out of north end of the beach quicker. So I called a real estate buddy of mine who's in development. I said, hey, man, why are we still 100 years behind on the south end? He said, it's all the wetlands, man. It's all the marsh. I mean, you can't build a road. You could, but it would cost you, you know, a billion dollars a mile, and you would have to, you know, protect all the inhabited areas and whatnot. Well, the low country is even worse than that. The further down south you go, along the South Carolina coastline, the more influenced it is by the marshes and the wetlands and some of the, um, you know, the, the, the feeders. I mean, it's the watershed. It's the way the, the water gets out to the, um, to the ocean. So, um, th- I mean, th- there's so many relatable issues in this lawsuit. Now, now, I will say something that Bob touched on. Being motivated to kill someone is different than doing it. I mean, I, I think Dave Baker could get motivated. I mean, if somebody hurt his family member, I think Ref could get motivated to the point of wanting revenge, seeking revenge. But, but I don't know how you pull that trigger. And when somebody's laying face down, I mean, it, it's fairly well proven now that the mom was face down and somebody shot her in the back of the head. I mean, that's fairly well documented. Both sides agree that they were killed execution style. 
So, so what about a human being? Not, not only motivates them to get that angry, but, but they act upon that anger. I think I could get angry enough to kill someone. I mean, in, in protecting my family, I, I, I think I could. I mean, if somebody were to violently attack my daughter, I think I could you know, sum it up the energy. Uh, and I'm not talking about Dukakis in the presidential debate. Remember that? Uh, kind of a weird answer he gave because he's a liberal and didn't want to admit that he would hurt another and fellow human being. Well, I mean, I'll admit in a minute that if somebody got me to that point, I think I could pull the trigger. But, but what about somebody allows them to stand over a person that you believe is already dead and discharge a firearm at the back of their head? I mean, that, isn't that, I mean, it helped me, Rev. Isn't that kind of monsterish? Oh, gosh. I, mean, I, that, I can't even No, you imagine. can't fathom that. But, but you can fathom being angry enough to, to, to want to kill someone. You can. I mean, we all can. Yeah. We all see a circumstance in our lives that would allow us to do something we never imagined we would do, and that is to kill someone in protecting or defense or, or revenge for a loved one of ours. But, but standing over somebody who's obviously in, in dire straits, and I'm talking about they're probably dead anyway, and you shoot again, wow. I mean, that's a different level of whatever. I mean, that's that bent gene that I talk a lot about. That's just a um, that's a far more bent gene than most of us have. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington, good morning. Good morning, fellas. Uh, uh, that's kind of heavy, Ken. And uh, the one thing you did say that I, my dad always said, don't ever think that because somebody's talking slow, they're thinking slow. Well, um, but the other, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, the other thing, I was just, you know, I think that that's just the misconceptions of lots of Southerners from from people outside the area. The real thing I was thinking, I was free associating with everything you're saying when you brought, what if the law firm was kind of complicit in knowing what was going on? And I was just thinking of a couple things that I know, you know, they, and I think this was different with their firm. You know, technically, he didn't steal from any clients because all money goes to the law firm. How many times have they said that? And they've made all those people whole. He stole from the law firm. And then you think, well, maybe some of them knew what was really going on. And then he said yesterday, you know, I knew I was making a lot of money, and I didn't have a lot of money. Do you remember when he said that? Yeah, and that, 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 well, I mean, I— I'd always, well, I say always, for the last week or two, it's begun to dawn, began to dawn on me that maybe he was not the only person in the law firm that knew what was going on. And yesterday when that was said, that was kind of an aha moment for me. Me too. Thank you, Nick. Okay. Appreciate that. And I don't know any of this. I mean, we're totally um, speculating here. And, um, you know, I, but I, I could go down the crazy Eddie road or Uncle Eddie or Cousin Eddie. I think it's Cousin Eddie. Um, it, a lot of things just don't make sense. I mean, you know, I put my business on the street. And it doesn't bother me. We've talked about it on the air before. Um, I did somewhat of a forensic accounting when my son was in his worst days as an opioid addict. Um, and it was roughly, I mean, it was hard to get to a thousand dollars a week and he didn't have the money. He's, he's taking the money from, you know, businesses that we are partners in. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of know what's happening. You just don't want to believe it. And it goes on for a few, and then all of a sudden the bank calls you and you got to deal with it. You know, I mean, it, we all can relate to that. I hope we can. Uh, or maybe you guys are more ethical than I am, more moral than I am. But I mean, life gets off the tracks at times. But, um, but, but I did some sort of a, a, a kind of a forensic accounting 
and it was about a grand a week at the worst. Some of the worst imaginable weeks in his life were about when, and he didn't have the money. He's taking the money from things that we do together um, until you run out of money. <laughs> then all of a sudden you got to deal with it. But, but 50 grand a week in opiates, $50,000 a week, you're paying your drug dealer for Oxycontin and Oxycodone. I don't buy that. Now, now, where was that money going? Was Cousin Eddie getting a cut and some of the attorneys getting another cut, kind of end-arounding, redirecting some of the funds? I don't know. I mean, this goes back to Rev um, congratulating me on being such a good <laughs> plunder. I don't know if it's <laughs> congratulations or not. Oh, but, but I mean, I, I brainstorm and I go, okay, um, well, I'm not good Southern lawyer. They're pretty sharp about not knowing what's going on, but knowing everything that's um, that's going on. And I just, you know, you begin to put this puzzle together in your head and and, uh, and it's total speculation. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but there are a lot of um, there are a lot of oddities about this situation that just don't make any sense. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Few minutes left in this edition of Wake Up Carolina. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Neil in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Good morning. Hey guys, I'm uh, I'm thinking about the future here with this Alex Murdoch thing. I think. A tame Quentin Tarantino movie with about three different endings, you know, where you go, okay, what really happened would be good. But the real tragedy to me is that Kevin Spacey's on the outs because I think Kevin Spacey would play one heck of an Alec Murda. No <laughs> doubt about it. No, after what he that's, did at, that's um, very sad to me. Yeah. In wow. the uh, House of Cards. Evil? Can you imagine? Oh, in House of Cards, yeah. Oh, he would be so good at that role. I'm like, Maybe, maybe they'll get him back and rehabilitated in time to play it in a couple of years. Good deal. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate that. Do we have another call? Okay, we don't have another another call. And, um, I mean, I think the state will continue its cross-examination of Alec Murdoch or Alex Murdoch, depending on where you're where you're from. It's kind of like um, some of the northern reporters. Lady of the Wall Street Journal covers the Deep South. I mean, I've read some of her uh, reporting. I actually watched about 30 minutes of a podcast she does. She's actually a Wall Street Journal reporter assigned to the Deep South. I, I don't get that. I mean, hmm. what is it about the deep south? I guess it's her region, her territory. But um, but she can't bring herself to call him Alec Murdoch because it's spelled Alex Murdoch. Right. And she just refuses to give in to the uh, country bumpkins and their way of pronouncing. Have you um, seen any of Nancy Grace? Um, she's on Fox Nation, and she's doing a commentary, and she'll come and respond after there's a testimony or something. She calls him Murdoch. Murdog. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, she's kind of an aggressive oh, yeah. personality on television. Um, anyway. Right. And I want to give a shout out, by the way, Will folks with Fitz News. He's been on this thing, and I I can learn a lot just from reading his tweets throughout the day. He's doing a good job. Will's doing an excellent job. Will's grown up a lot. I mean, he really has. It, Will was the, um, you know, if you leave a little blood in the water in politics, I can relate. I mean, he and I, <laughs> I mean, you know this, he and I developed a pretty good friendship. I actually texted with Will a little bit yesterday about some of the work he's doing inside the courtroom. Now, I mean, this is what I've heard. I don't know this. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what Neil thinks. All that matters is those 12 jurors. I mean, not God Almighty. I mean, God in heaven will eventually get the ultimate um, say. But but the 12 jurors, and I hear, and I think you heard the same thing, that something swung yesterday mm -hmm. that Murdoch, Alec Murdoch, proved to be a good witness and acquitted himself well in, um, in communicating to the jurors that, yes, I'm a bad dude. I am as lousy as they come. I stole from people. I regret it. I'm sorry. I wish I'd never done it. I am as guilty as charged on all of those fronts. But I didn't kill my wife, 
and I didn't kill my kid. And from what I gathered from Will and others in the courtroom, um, the jury seemed to relate to some of that. Now, is it real humility or false? I don't have any idea. Once again, um, he's a lawyer. He's somewhat of an actor, but it's somewhat of an act. I mean, a trial, in essence, is some sort of a, um, I mean, there's some degree of theater and theatrics involved in uh, in criminal cases and, and criminal trials. We shall see. But but once again, um, I think the state will conclude its cross-examination today. Um, I think Harputlian said he's got a couple of other experts, and then we'll start closing arguments uh, toward the end of the week. Um, it'll be interesting. Uh did Creighton Waters, who's the lead attorney on the state's side, save his best for last? And is there some, um, will he put Alec Murdoch in a very difficult position this morning at some point in time? I mean, I think it started about 930. And that's the speculation. That's, I mean, yeah, you know. That but it's he, nothing but speculation. He kind of wanted to remind the people, hey, you're dealing with a bad guy. You're dealing with a cunning guy, dealing with a dishonest guy. But he's got to convince them that they're dealing with a cold blood killer. Enjoy your week. Wow. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.